Welcome to the Get Deep Podcast, where premium spirits meet quality conversation. Featuring your extremely good-looking co-hosts, Aaron Jones and Wes Otto. Now, take off those floaties, get your ass out of the shallow end, and let's get deep. How you doing over there, Wes? So good. Love your chest hair. Looks amazing. Jack, love the, the shaved head, buddy. <laughs> it's, it's, I, all, it's my, it's, uh, I was going to go, I was talking to my, mo, my barber today. I was thinking about going with the skullet. Yeah. Yeah, do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. That'd be so bad, skullet. right? Matt always, uh, my business partner, Matt always talks to me about growing out the back and doing a rat tail. He's like, the rat tails are coming back. And I'm like, obviously coming from the prettiest man I know. Have you ever seen any of the Jay Long's marketing videos on Facebook? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So we do this fashion place concept and the latest one we bought Matt about a dozen mirrors and about 30 combs and shoved them in a bag. And his whole part of his skit was just pulling out mirrors and looking at himself and combing his hair. Awesome. It was fun. Yeah. We're having a good time. OMG Wes's company is the people behind the camera of all those. Oh, okay. So his family uh, owns Zans while well, him and his sister oh, okay. own Zans. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And now. His parents uh, started it. And then, uh, and OMG. You guys just sold that, right? Yeah, mom and dad sold it to me and Molly, my sister. Oh, okay, so, yeah, not, not too sold, far away. Yeah, but yeah. not, yeah, exactly. So it works out nice. That's yeah, it's awesome. good stuff. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Get Deep podcast. It's a beautiful evening, and we have a beautiful guest on with us tonight that I'm very excited about. Um, it's somebody that was on my list from the very beginning because I know that this person is uh, a great person, also a client of Jay Long's over the years, of course, and a good community advocate for veterans and people that are serving because he himself uh, is a combat veteran. And tonight on the Get Deep podcast, we have Jack Zimmerman joining us. Welcome, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. This is awesome. And uh, yeah. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Does uh, Jack have a middle name? Yeah, actually, uh, no, actually I have two. You have two? Yeah. Me too. No way. I swear to God. Jack William Paul Zimmerman. William Paul yeah. Zimmerman. That's yeah. close. So Jack Bill Paul Zimmerman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have two as well, Jack. It's Aaron Richard William Jones. Oh, yeah. Aaron Dick Bill Jones. <laughs> I had buddies in high school call me Dick Bill. That's great. Yeah, that's kind of funny. I mean, there's worse things. There is worse things. I always thought it would be cool because I'd have names to laugh last me my whole life. You know, right now I'm usually Jonesy <laughs> sure. to, to people and clients. And then maybe in, I don't know, my 50s, I'll be, I'll be uh, Bill and then maybe in my 60s, I'll be Dick because I'd right. be a little older and crotchety <laughs> right. yelling at kids off my porch. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, I got to keep them off the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. I got to keep them, <laughs> got to keep them out of that rhubarb. That's right. Love it. Hey, Wes. Hi, Aaron. You look gorgeous tonight. I'm looking sweaty tonight. It's hot. It's the last hot day in the summer. It's like 95 degrees out. And I was stupid and wore this really beautiful shirt from Jay Long's that has long sleeves. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. It looks good on you. Um, but like I said earlier, you can just unbutton as many buttons as you want. I'm down three. I don't think Jack or myself will get offended by any means. So I'm not worried about offended. We we could just do a shirtless party in here. Uh, (laughs) I always get, I always get nervous when I go into Jay Long's or maybe I'm not going to be treated like the same kind of customer because I I look at the value of me as being a half a customer since I lost both my legs. You know, you can't sell me any pants. (laughs) I'm always like, man, I wonder if they treat me differently because they only see as like, as like, you know, we can't really upsell him as much, you know, never would never. Never. I've always enjoyed working with you. And in fact, you've always appreciated quality when you've, uh, when you've bought nicer quality threads. Yeah, I remember absolutely. selling you a really cool Jack Victor, uh, that 
you were going to wear, plan on wearing to go to Washington yeah. to actually meet President Trump yeah, at the right. time, which got canceled. That's right. Weather. Did, did it ever come no, to it never, fruition? No, it never worked out. Uh, I was literally sitting in the White House waiting for him, and uh, he was on the tarmac, and we were in the middle of an ice storm. So uh, somebody had to get nixed off the schedule for that day because, you know, he said, I think he sat out there for like four hours before they could fly him in to the center of D.C., you know. And, wow. And so uh, never ended up working out. But uh, I feel like I, feel like, I think I was the sharpest dressed guy in Washington that day. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> There's a lot of people in high power positions that dress like crap. That is true. Yeah. Uh, what what brought you to the White House that particular day? Is it your service or was it? Uh, some yeah, of... veterans issues. Yeah, okay. I was out there talking about those things. Doing and, some advocating. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh that. Yeah, there's so much there's so much stuff to be done you know and and uh, just be able to share with somebody the uh, things that you see that are wrong or things that could be better or you know things that don't even cost anything that could just be adjusted that maybe uh, somebody from the insider writing the legislation really would never see or anticipate or you know right I like yeah. to try to give those insights and and um, and I have no problem going in there and, and telling them what I think is wrong or messed up or yeah. You know, because they actually want to hear the true, real, the real problems, you know. And if there was a man that ever knew what was going on on, on the side of what's probably messed up, especially when it comes to VA and, and yeah. the medical side of things, it's you. But before we get too far into the issues of the organization, we should probably talk more about you and your yeah. background. Huh? Yeah, I love it. What's uh, what's the history of Jack Zimmerman? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? For yeah, those I, who may not know who you are. I grew up from a real small town here in southern Minnesota, Cleveland, just down the road from here in Mankato. And, and uh, very super regular childhood. Grew up, you know playing basketball summer long and baseball with my friends, you know, and, and going to school. And I was never a kid that really liked school. <laughs> uh, uh, it was always, I was, I never really was a good student, I guess you could say, but, um, looking back now, it kind of made me a, a lot of who I am today, a lot easier, I guess. Uh, went to school, uh, graduated from there and, uh, I wanted to be an electrician. I thought that was what I wanted to be in life. And, and, uh, I started, I went to school in Albert Lee for a year to be an electrician and, um, started wiring then after through the summer job. And, and, uh, I thought, why would I go back to school if I already got the job that I wanted, you know? And so I continued wiring and I worked on a really co- lot of cool projects here in Mankato. One of the buildings that we're here recording this in, I worked on uh, Bethany here when they did this extension or expansion or whatever you want to call it. And another thing I, uh, worked on the biggest project I worked on was the justice center here in town. And, okay. And, nice. and uh, yeah, that was kind of cool. Yeah. You know? And you were doing uh, electric, you yeah. were doing the electrician yeah. work. Okay. Yeah. You know, working in the jail cells and yeah, and putting those there, that was kind of fun, you know, and I uh, spent more time in jail than I wanted to. I guess <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I got to do some office stuff too. So I got a real good mix of different things, you know, to work on in that building. And, and, uh, when I was working there, I remember, uh, one guy was sitting across from me and, and he was talking about retiring and there was another guy sitting next to him and he was talking about how his wrists had been bothering him, you know, and, you know, and the next guy over to me was talking about his kids and stuff. And I was probably 19 years old, hungover, sitting on the break ta- morning <laughs> break table. And I just thought to myself, what am I doing here right now? You know, I mean, I just kind of seen like this was kind of like Groundhog's Day. I was going to be doing the same thing every single day at break. You know, doing this, doing that, you know, pulling wire, bending pipe. And I was like, this is <laughs> what the rest of my life is going to look like. And this is what I have to look forward to, you know. And uh, I left the work that day and I went right to the right to the mall and I went right into the recruiter station. And I said, I want to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. I want to get there as fast as I can. I want to be on the front lines. How do I do that? The guy's like, don't move. You know, he's, he's yells in the back, got one. You this know? is the easiest yeah. sale I've ever had. Yeah. 
Exactly. And uh, I went out to Sioux Falls and did my physical and everything and joined, and that's when I told everybody. Hold up, hold up. Yeah. I, I get yeah. the not wanting to do the monotonous and the electrical, yeah. but what, what there had to either be a background of service in the family not or really. passion no. for it on your end. You just knew even before you got into the electrical field, that that was something you were interested I mean, in? Was, it sounds crazy now, but I always wanted to join the military. I never really knew how. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a recruiter there, but, you know, you hear all the horror stories of getting scammed or this or that. Well, I have a little, they're not really to get scammed on when you're signing up for their, you know, they're trying to sell, you know. And uh, not that it's a scam by any means, but, uh, you know, it's maybe not what everybody wants to do, you know. And, uh I always wanted to join. I watched 9-11 happen. I was actually kicked out of class when I, I actually heard the towers, you know, on, over the radio in another classroom that were falling, and I yeah. ran back to my classroom. I was like, hey, there's something going on. Something's getting bombed, you know. And I remember my teacher was like, you're kicked out. I'm like, no, I really think you should <laughs> turn the TV on. And see. Stop yourself. You're going to regret that. <laughs> yes. yeah. How old are you? Uh, I'm 32 right now. 32. I'm 33, actually. Just, just turned 33. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I knew you were similar age to myself, but yeah. I couldn't remember exactly. So when you said you remember the classroom at, at 32 and 9-11, yeah. so you would have been in like seventh grade. Yeah, seventh grade. Yeah, There you go. Okay. Cause I was, a, I was a, in a sophomore yep. myself, but, uh, I was in second grade. Yeah. Were you potty trained yet or no? <laughs> Just I, was, I was not only potty, potty trained, but I even stopped wetting the bed. So yeah. you did. It was, okay. it, was a, it was a big day for that me. Win, win. Yeah. Is not what your mom told me at the holiday party, <laughs> but we'll come back to that. It's not about you right now, Wes. I love you. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, so we, okay, go back to, yeah, but there's really no, I mean, my, I mean, I knew both my grandfathers had served, but one of my grandfathers had already passed away before I was born, you know, and, you know, I was working with a, a, a guy that was in the military, you know, and I started kind of bouncing a few questions off of him while we were working, you know, and, and all of a sudden it was just like, you know, what do I got to lose? You know, I, I wanted to get out of here. I mean, not that like this is a bad place, but I knew that I want to go see what there was. There had to been more in this world than Mankato. Sure. You know? And so and that was part of it. And I love the idea of the adventure. I love the idea of fighting for your country. I mean, that was my main, my main draw to it all is, I mean, I, I remember like uh, sitting in my school, like on veterans day and watching those guys walk in and carrying the flags and stuff. And you know, to me, that that was what symbolized a man to me. You know, those guys were willing to drop everything to go fight for their country, you know, and that really inspired me. I really wanted to be, you know, one of those guys someday, you know. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I just made the decision that this is what I want to go do. I want to do it now. And I'm a very spontaneous person. And it was kind of, my, in a sense, my my first chance to make a real adult decision, you know. I mean, that wasn't bounced off of somebody. That wasn't, you know, and I thought, well, how bad could could it be to join the army, you know I mean? Right. It's just, you know, who could be upset with a decision like that? It seemed like a good moral, you know, thing to do. So it all moved super fast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You I joined. Yeah. I signed were... up. Uh, it's funny. I joined in the spring, but I told him I had a wedding at the end of August. Cause I heard that I was going to do basic training in Georgia. And I thought Georgia in July does not sound, <laughs> does <laughs> not move. sound appealing, you know? So I was like, I got a wedding at the end of August. I got to be in and then I can leave. And the guy's like, all right, September 1st, you're leaving. And so, I rolled out, uh, left Sioux Falls, and made my way down to uh, down to uh, through Atlanta. And I remember uh, they give you these, you know these directions or whatever on how to get there. You know, there's no smartphones then, you know, and stuff. And so they were supposed to meet at this clock tower in, in Atlanta, and they said you'll you'll some guys will come out yelling for you and just join them, and they'll take you down to base training on a bus. And I was like, all right. So I'm walking around. I find the clock tower, and I'm looking around. I'm like, 
I don't see anybody here. Like, you know, and we're supposed to be here in like 15 minutes. And I'm just kind of like walking away then, but kind of like I could see it, but I wasn't there, you know, kind of a thing. And I kept watching. And then about three or four minutes till about time, you start seeing other guys carrying the same kind of backpacks that I had. And other guys start showing up. And all of a sudden some guy in a military uniform walks out and he's like, anybody going to Fort Benning? Come with me. And it's like, it was just like roaches that came out of everywhere. Just people and lined us up in a hallway and they, put us in alphabetical order, walked us on a bus and drove us down to Fort Benning. And that's when I got, that's when the military started, you know, they come on the bus, they're hollering and you're welcome to Fort Benning, you know, and you know, <laughs> you ready for the worst decision in your life and trying to scare you, you know, and, and, uh, they walk in and it's kind of like the movies in a sense. I mean, they literally shave your head that night and they give you a uniform. You spend the whole night, you're up all night getting an in process, you know, was there ever a point up to that point? You know, the, the, he's yelling stuff, you know, yeah. you, you, welcome to the worst decision of your life, shaving your head, all that, that you were thinking, shit. No, actually. Did I make the wrong decision? Or were you kind of excited and you're like, okay, no, I can jive with this. No, never really once during my military career did I ever think, why am I here? Why am I doing this? You know, I, I always looked at everything as an experience, you know, as an opportunity. And uh, as crazy as it sounds, there's so many times when I first got in the Army, I always thought, man. I get to tell myself from this day on, I'll never be more miserable than this. And then the next day you're like, <laughs> I did it again. I topped it, you know, but like, I was always like, a, it was not really a competition, but as I always, all the time, you always kept getting things that were, but they just kept getting a little bit more intense. And you're like, you started to be able to laugh through them. You started, you know, <laughs> going through things and, and understanding them. And, and, uh, you, you turn the struggles into adventures and you turn them into challenges and, and, uh, nobody wants to win more than I do, you know? And so you set a, a goal in your head to accomplish something and you get so fixated on accomplishing that goal that the pain or the suffering or whatever it is that you're going through just really isn't there anymore, you know? Cause you're just so focused on what it is that you want to achieve. Right. That's a powerful mindset. Yeah. You know, but that's all, but that's all you can't just, you know, read in a book about, you know, going through a struggle and, and coming out the other stride more positive. It's you read those things with tips and pointers and ideas on how you're going to get through it. So, you know, when you do find yourself in those situations, you can power through them, you know, and, and you have to go through them to, to build and grow from those things, you know, where does that come from Jack in your life? I mean, is there, is there somebody that has inspired you to have that positive mental attitude and spirit? did you always have that? So it sounds like you, you've always kind of had that adventurous kind of, yeah, this love, is a learning experience. Yeah. I love playing sports, especially in high school. I think that's kind of where a lot of all my stuff really started from, you know, I loved, uh, I love going to practice and feeling beat up at the end of practice and wore out, you know, and I loved, uh, competing on a team and, you know, when you're playing on a team, you know, if you, if, uh, things aren't going well in a game, you know, nobody wants to play with a guy that's, that's like, Oh man, we're beat. What are we even doing out here? You know? Nobody wants to play with that guy, but there's always that. I always like playing with the guy that's like, hey, it's not over till it's over. We get one break here and we're back in this thing. And you're like, all right, yeah, let's do this, you know? And I like being on teams like that yeah. and being inspired and being a part of something bigger than myself. I always right. have been, you know? And, and if I was ever doing anything for myself, it was never as satisfying as it was to do a, do be a part of a team, you know? Like uh, I enjoy playing basketball and football and sports like that a lot more than I did playing golf or anything else like that, you know, cause it was part of a team. Right. No, I love that. That's awesome. So you were, you, you were, uh, deployed. Um, yeah. you were, you're going through your, um, it was Benning, Fort Benning. Yeah. So, right? yeah. So I get down to Fort Benning and, uh, get in process. We did our basic training down there and that's kind of where I started building my group of military friends, you know, my core group of guys and my whole platoon and basic training was airborne Rangers or special forces. We all, 
So it's kind of cool because we we're all people that wanted to be in the infantry as a core, you know. But when we were in the infantry, we always we wanted something more than just being in the infantry. You know, we wanted to be a next tier of infantry. You know, we just didn't want to. We, we we all wanted something more out of it. You know, I guess what I'm trying to say. And uh, so we all pushed each other a little bit harder, and, and it was fun because we won all the competitions in basic training. You know, in your company, we had four platoons, and we would compete at everything. You know, we go out to the range and shoot, and our platoon would shoot better. You know, we had marching, drill, and ceremony competitions, and we'd work harder and train at night, you know, to beat the other platoons. And it was just, uh, I'm very lucky. I was put in a lot of situations where I was surrounded by really good people, and I think that's kind of where I learned, you know, especially is if you want to go places, you have to hang out with the people that, you know, are going in the same direction as you, you know? And uh, I had so many people that supported me and, and pushed me through basic training, you know? And and uh, and I really grew there and, and learned a lot about myself while I was there. And, and uh, I really really felt like that's where I started learning about myself and where I wanted to be in this world and how I fit in and everything. I feel like a lot of people go through that when they get out of high school, you know, and going to college, what do I want to do the rest of my life, you know? And I finally felt like I had a home, you know? I, I love the military. So I finished up my basic training at Fort Benning and and uh, right away I went to jump school and did my airborne school and I always joke, it's really simple. They teach you three, <laughs> three things. Week one is ground week. They teach you how to fall. So you jump off a log for a week and practice that. And then the week two, they teach you how to jump out. <clears throat> so you go up in this tower and you jump out of this simulated airplane, you slide down a zip line. And uh, they always tell you, if you can land and you can get out, you'll figure out everything in between. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, so we started jumping then our third week and uh, I had the best time of my life jumping, doing airborne school, and and uh, it was honestly one of the funnest times of my life, you know. And uh, as soon as I finished airborne school, and I got my orders, and I was going to 101st Airborne Division, um, which wasn't even really an airborne division anymore. So I was really sad I wasn't going to get to jump anymore. I really thought I was going to go to uh, the 82nd um, or in North Carolina or go to Alaska and keep keep jumping, but. There's a war going on. The surge was going on, and the 101st was getting ready to go to Afghanistan, and they needed more guys. So just to pause, okay. uh, did you decide on airborne, or were you yeah. assigned? No, when I went out to when I went out to Sioux Falls for the first time, uh, to you know to sign my contract and everything, I told them, you know, I want to be infantry and I want to jump out of planes, and I need those two on the line. Like I have a perfectly good job at home, I can go back to if I <laughs> sure. if I can't get those things. But the one thing I really want to do was jump out of planes. You know, I wanted. Uh, I wanted to do that. You know, that's all I, that's what I really wanted to do so bad. You know, I thought, man, I can get paid to do this. Like the rush. I mean, just that was Everything, a huge part yeah. about that's the, the I, adrenaline yeah, yeah. rush. I just, I just love the rush. I love, I still need that. You know, I mean, still today I'm out seeking it, you know I mean? It was, it wasn't that long ago that I was like, man, I need to rush so bad. And I got in a two seater race car and my buddy just, you know, we went on the racetrack <laughs> and, and I was like, when we got out, I was like, oh, that was the rush I needed. That was, <laughs> that was good. You know, adrenaline jump. I'm good. Yeah, See you next time. week. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Same time. Yeah. Same price. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Did you notice that after you had done that quite a bit, that, uh, other types of adrenaline or other experiences were maybe a little dampened because oh, oh definitely i mean yeah. geez you've been jumping out of planes <laughs> there's not there's not something uh there's not very f many things that are more extreme yeah i mean uh yeah i mean i was always chasing the rush you know and and uh after you've been in a gunfight you know true uh yeah, there yeah i mean uh and spending even just nine months in combat i mean i don't think people really understand uh the emotional roller coaster of of war you know i mean we always see in the movies but i don't think they do i mean it's a hard thing to portray, but I mean, uh, there's the highs are so high and the lows can be so low, you know? And, um, 
you can go from a situation where you're like, well, we're, we're goners to, wow, how do we get out of that? You know, and it's just the most incredible feeling in the world. You know, you feel, you feel bigger and better than Superman, you know, in a sense, you know, especially when you get out of the close ones, <laughs> you yeah. know, I bet. Um, can you talk more yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah. To, I mean, because yeah. most people, including yeah, Wes and I, yeah. will, will never be in that situation. You yeah. Know? Like I mean, when you, when you got people firing at you and you know that they're yeah, trying there's usually to kill a, you. Yeah. And there's usually a buildup, you know, um, to a gunfight. I mean, you see things happening, you know, maybe not the first time, a couple of times you go through it, you know, you don't see them coming. I guess you could say it's more of a surprise, but usually, you know, your team leaders and your squad leaders and stuff that have been to combat before, you know, they, they have an idea when you're going to be attacked and things like that. And so they kind of give you a heads up, like, you know, and you have your sector, like, I mean, the military is so simple. Everything's broken down into here's your job. You do it well and we will be successful, you know? And don't try to do anybody else's job. <laughs> you know, don't try to do more than what you're asked to do. Just do your job and everything will go, you know, perfectly, you know? So you just have your sector of fire. You know, you watch, you know, your team will say, hey, watch this area, you know, and you're watching those areas. And we go through so many battle drills. You know, we have a battle drill for everything. No matter what happens, we have a plan, you know? And so as you're going along, you know, you could be walking down a street in a city. You could be out in the middle of a field. Wherever you may be, all of a sudden you'll you hear shots ring out, you know, because we're we're not really ever on the, as, as crazy as sounds, we're not really on the offensive. You know, we have rules of engagement. You know, we cannot engage an enemy until we are engaged, you know. And so a lot of times you'll have a rounds start coming in. And uh, if you're not behind uh, cover, we always have to say we always look for cover because concealment, you can, you can still get hurt through concealment, you know, like smoke or anything like that. You know, you want to get behind something solid. And the main part, the big, and the most uh, intense part of a firefight is that first minute, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, you know, whoever can gain fire superiority. And, um, you know, it's always trying to see who can get, who can get, who can get in better position than, than the other than the enemy, you know. And for us, the main thing we always want to do is keep moving whenever you get attacked because there's a reason they attacked you where you are. They felt like that's where you were the most vulnerable, you know. So you try to push through attacks and take on the enemy. And one great thing about being an American is we have firepower. <laughs> and uh, we always usually had air that was around, you know, but a lot sometimes we didn't. And uh, we always utilize our air assets heavily, you know. So we had helicopters and things that we would use especially. And, and um the main things that you learn that I've learned through a, a gunfight is communication. You know I mean? That's the key in a gunfight is communicating better than the enemy and, and having a plan and sticking to it and maneuvering and trusting your training, you know, and, and just fighting through those situations. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, you have that, that thing in the back of your head that kicks in, you know, and, uh, you put yourself, you, 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 you're there to win the fight, you know? And, you push through and you find yourself in a situation and, and majority of the time we always came out on top, you know, and, uh, it just shows that, uh, how important it is that our military continues to train as hard as they do, because it, I mean, um, we could, we, we were, we were so effective and efficient on the battlefield. And I think we see that a lot now happening in Ukraine and Russia, you know, you're seeing a force that hasn't been to war in a really long time going against, uh, basically a guerrilla force in Ukraine. And, it is not going well for them, you know, and, and, uh, most of those guys that are fighting have never seen a day of combat in their lives. So the first time they stepped into Ukraine, you know, where us new guys were being led by guys that ever <clears throat> had spent three or four or five, six years in Iraq already up to this point, you know, or Afghanistan, you know, itself. But, um, you know, in those gunfights, so, you know, you have the, <clears throat> you don't have a whole lot of emotions early on. Everything is so reactionary, you know, and everything happens so fast and so quick. And, 
Um, it sounds crazy, but then all of a sudden an hour goes by, you know, and you're just like, what has even gone on in this last, you know? And uh, just trying to keep your energy and you're moving through these gunfights and trying to keep moving. But the second you stop, you start feeling that adrenaline come down. You can really, that's when you start becoming so aware of what's going on. You know, you start checking yourself out to make sure you're not hurt anywhere. You're checking buddies out. You're checking how much water you have left, how much ammunition you still have on you. Uh, what's the plan going forward? You know, where is everybody else? That's a big thing too on the battlefield, you know, when you're shooting around and doing this and that, like other guys aren't maneuvering and, you know, you're not <laughs> having crossfire, you know, and stuff oh, like sure. that. So going through those things and, and uh, the main thing is, is always, um, you're always trying to figure out where they're trying to push you to, where they're trying to get you to go into, because everything else though isn't, they're just not shooting at you just to shoot at you. They're trying to get you to push into an IED or something else, you know I mean? They're really good fighters, you know. They've been doing it a long time, and you can always tell if you're fighting um, an older generation, a good a good group of fighters, or if you're fighting, uh, you know, some guys that are just trying to make a name for themselves, you know, that haven't done this much. You can definitely tell, you know, because the older guys would hit you from three sides, and it would be <laughs> super intense, and they'd try to get you into positions that weren't good positions, and you could tell they had a plan. Or the other times you get hit from one side, and you're like, <laughs> you'd almost be like, is this is this a trap, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, you know, you'd find yourself out of those gunfights super quick. And, and majority of gunfights don't last, you know, all day or anything like that. But, you know, we definitely had those gunfights that would go what felt like a week long, you know. We should probably uh, tell the story of you actually got deployed, where you went. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, your, what what all of that looked like, what your yeah, assignment sure. was. So um, I deployed them with the 101st Airborne Division. And uh, it's really cool. I got to leave on June 6, 2010, which was D-Day, you know, from 1944, whatever year it was, they jumped yep. in. And and uh, it was really cool because you had a bunch of those guys on post, you know, giving us these these speeches to take off to war, you know, and giving us getting us all amped up. And, and uh, those guys gave us all of our speeches, and we walked out and got on a commercial plane. And it's, it's just wild, you know, carrying your machine gun onto a commercial plane. And, <laughs> you know, you jump on and. We flew into Kyrgyzstan and we were in Kyrgyzstan for a little bit, did some paperwork and that's where we got all of our ammo and got loaded up and then got on a cargo plane then there and flew into Afghanistan and uh, we got to Kandahar. And one of the things I always remember most about when I got to Kandahar was I had these bags I'd throw over my shoulder, you know, all your stuff that you had, you'd throw them over your shoulder and you'd be walking. And uh, that's the first time I ever experienced elevation change like that before. And uh, I remember how winded I got. I was like, man, this is did I get this out of shape in a week, you know, flying? But, <laughs> you know, you started adjusting real quick to the elevation. Then we trained there and we trained and we trained and we trained. And we talked to other guys that had been on the battlefield already. And we were going into a AO area of operations um, that uh, no Americans had really ever been in before. We were going to go take new ground that um, had never been taken before. And uh, <laughs> it was a Taliban's backyard. I mean, it was a Zari district. Um, that's where the Taliban first originated from. That was their home. And uh, by the end of it all, we ended up building a base on one side of this road. And on the other side of the road was the largest Taliban graveyard in the world. And then the other side was the city um, that they all lived in, you know. And so we were right in the, right in the middle of it. And we landed uh, in uh, um, Kandahar, like I said. And we pushed out from helicopters there and flew out to our area of operations there in the Zari district. And the, the Zari district would be like the county. And uh, the Kandahar province would be like the state inside the country of Afghanistan. So... Um, just to put into con uh, as or size wise, I guess you could say is, you know, you could fit Afghanistan the size of Texas, you know, that's about how big the country is, you know? And so we went down there and we landed on the North side of highway one. We built a base there and, and then we went over to a base that was much further to our West called, uh, Terminator. 
And we worked out of there for a while, and we took uh, indirect fire there for 30 days straight. We just got mortared <laughs> for 30 days. You know, if we were awake, we were either up in a guard tower, um, you were patrolling out in the city, or you were uh, in, staying in the bunker because there was just rounds coming in all the time. That wow. had to be a mental just... Sorry, but a mental fuck. Yeah. I mean, geez, to be I mean, kinda, 30 days. I mean, kind of, but at the same time, it was like two middle fingers right back because they never got any of us. <laughs> That's <laughs> what know, I was going to They were landing all the time inside. They're tearing tents up, hitting buildings, uh, you know, hitting everything but us, you know. But we, you know, we, we took the precautions, you know. If the sun was up, we were in a bunker, <laughs> you know. And, sure. and, you know, if you're in a bunker, you're usually pretty good, you know. And you well, might good. catch some shrapnel or something, you know. Or if it hits on top, it might ring your bell pretty sure. good, but. You know, nothing a little time won't fix, you know? And, wow. And, uh, but yeah, every time a round would come in, we go out and chase them, you know? And eventually we ended up catching the guys, you know, that were doing it. And, and, uh, their day got worse. And <laughs> how, how far away from your, um, base camp, essentially? Uh, what do you, what do you call we it? We call it a cop, a company outpost. Okay. How far away are they launching them from? Oh, in terms of yards? Yeah. So we were kind of out in the middle of nowhere, which, okay. I don't know if it was better or worse for our situation, sure. but uh, it was probably a quarter mile. Not even that. Probably like, yeah, probably about a quarter mile. Quarter mile. They're yeah, launching to the closest city. Yeah, mortars. the closest city where they're shooting them out of. Yeah. Okay. You know, and they would shoot them from places that they know that we couldn't shoot back. You know. Sure. And you know, and they would. Always, they, they knew our rules of engagement too. You know. Right. And then, how high are the walls that are built behind? You know, yeah. around your your. Uh, yes, yeah, so we have like area. a ten or twelve foot. Uh, we call it a Hesco wall. It's like a basket with a with a canvas in it. And we fill them full of dirt, you know, we can spread these things out really fast, you know, bring an excavator in, build these bases relatively quickly. And then they stack like another four foot on top of that. So you can stand on the bottom one and fight off, you know, you have the top one for cover. And we use those and, and uh, we would have a, a big outer perimeter, you know, with an, one entrance point and then we'd have a smaller one. So in case we ever did have a breach in the wall, we had somewhere else so everybody could fall back to and fight from, you know, there too. So. I mean, it was, it was a lot to build these bases. And I actually, uh, at Cop Terminator, nothing was working, you know. I mean, the generators didn't work. We didn't have any running water. Everything was, was broken. And in my free time, that's what I spent my time doing, just being a farm kid from southern Minnesota that was, I mean, I was never a master of anything. I was just dangerous, you know. <laughs> I could just, I'd try, though. I'd definitely try, you know. And Let me see that. Yeah. Is this electrical? Yeah. <laughs> I got this. You know, I know a little bit about it. And, uh. I got the generators running and I, and, uh, got the well fixed and, you know, just broken pipe, you know, just spewing, you know, pump, but it just went, had no pressure cause I was blowing out the backside. So I got a new pipe and for it and got the generators running. And then we ended up, uh, building another base called cop Omicon. That's when I was just describing earlier next to the Taliban graveyard and stuff. And we got down there and the walls were built, but there was no floors or anything like that for the tents to be put on. And the tents ran on like uh they have like a, a small structure to them but it's mainly air inflated these tents you know is what they ran off of and everything needed electricity so i uh <laughs> i was like let's let's get these conics open and see what's in there and i basically helped build the whole base you know and i wired the whole thing myself and my buddies would help Jeez. me drag wire and you, you know the engineers it? couldn't really get down there you know it was, it was brutal to get down there and and so we kind of built everything ourselves and we built the floors and we, we really just wanted somewhere to sleep, you know, at night instead of yeah. in the sand, you know, and the sand fleas were so bad. They just eat you alive every night. And it was just hard to get a good night of sleep, sleeping on body armor for a, a mattress and a helmet for a pillow, you know? So we wanted somewhere good to sleep and a place to dry off, you know, and be out of the sun and everything else. So, uh, 
we ended up building all this stuff and then I ended up actually getting an award for it. And, and you know, it was, it was cool to be recognized, you know, and that's one thing the army was really good at was recognize people that went above and beyond what they were asked to do. And I volunteered for everything. You know, I remember at one point my, my team leaders and squad leaders were like, Hey, that's, you know, you don't have to volunteer for everything, you know? And I was like, well, I'm here. If you guys, you know, I'm here to serve my country. Whatever you guys need, you know, just, just ask, you know? And I always wanted, I just wanted to, you know, I was, I was there and, and my people, you know, I just want to be the best soldier I could be all the time, you know? Excellent attitude. Yeah. When it came to building those, those cops, yeah. um, how much of what you were using were things that were brought to you by the military itself versus did you have to source things where you were like from the environment or from neighboring cities or yeah so uh so whenever we go up to the to the what we call the the fob the the forward operating base which would be the bigger ones you have the fob and then the cop with a smaller one we go to the fob to get resupplied uh we would call it acquiring we acquired a lot of things up there <laughs> that we needed for our base you know sure. and uh, the engineers up there were really pretty good about stuff once they figured out what was going on you know they were really good about giving us the things that we needed to to make our our base more comfortable and give us a place to live and that we wanted to be in you know and one of the things we we wanted so bad that was so hard to get was showers you know i mean that was the hardest thing to get was like you know when we had no running water once we left terminator there was just a well out in the desert and that's why they built the place where they did you know but where we were at at Cop uh, Amicon, then the last base that I was at where I got wounded at, um, that's where, uh, you know, we didn't really have showers. You know, you literally take bags, you know, they have like a clear side on them and lay them out in the sun all day to warm them up. And that was basically you'd stand somewhere and try to hang that over the top. You have somewhere off a truck or whatever you could just to get rinsed off a little bit, you know. But yeah. pretty much every day was a baby wipe shower pretty much every day for two or three weeks until you get to go back up to the base and to the fob and get a shower and a hot meal. <laughs> There's some stinky guys out there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, how was the, um, my brother-in-law who, who also served, um, would talk about, you know, just sand, you know, just constantly wind, you know, um, the, the wind storms that would yeah. come through and it just kind of peppers you and it, it almost, um, doesn't it kind of burn your skin a little bit. Yeah. It was like, uh, we have brownouts quite a bit where it's just like, uh, the sand would roll in and it would just be would just literally be brown you know you couldn't see very far it was like a super thick fog but it was legit sand or dirt you know just floating in the air and where i was at was the river of the arkansas river valley so that was where the the main source of water that ran through there was at and it was really cool because the, the side that we were on was super fertile soil it was a lot like here in southern minnesota really rich black dirt um and they grew marijuana and opium and that's what they grew down there that's we walked through fields of that every single day and it was just everywhere that's all they grew and uh, as soon as you walked across the river, it was the Red Desert, you know, I mean, it was just sand, <laughs> you know, it's so surreal, you know, I mean, it was less than a quarter mile across the river, you know, and the river when it runs during the summertime is probably only 30 or 40 feet wide, you know, it's real shallow, and just really small trickle of water running through there. But then you get to the other side, and it was just like a whole different climate, whole wow. different country. It was really cool. And just cool to go see those things of the world, you know, and you think about how many few people have actually seen, seen right. that, you know, it's not really a, a touristy place. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, in the, in the spring and the summer, it was beautiful cause all the poppy and stuff would be blooming and, and, um, you know, and just turned so green and then it's like overnight they go and harvest all of it and it's just bare again, you know, kind of like here when all the corn gets ripped off, you know, in a couple of weeks, it'll be just, you know, you can see forever again, you know, right. And it was kind of the same way. And, it really changed the way that they fought us and stuff because they didn't have the concealment that they did before, you know, of, you know, to have that stuff to hide and run around in. And, and, uh, 
yes, yeah, so we fought and we fought and we fought. And the summer was very bad. And, and uh, actually, uh, October of that year was when I experienced my worst in Afghanistan. Yeah. And this is in two, just to catch people up timeline yeah. wise, yeah. this is 2000 and uh, this would be 2010. 10. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and so we fought through the summer, you know, we got there in June, fought through the summer. Um, you know, October rolls around the funding starting to slow down a little bit cause everything's harvested. And, uh, my, I remember I was October 15th, 16th, somewhere in there. And I remember sitting in the truck and, uh, a call came across the radio and it was my uh, best friend Lance's uh, daughter was born. And they were telling us, like, hey, Riley was born. You know, she weighs this much. And, uh, you know, she's this long. And I got to, and he was in my truck. And I was like, hey, man, you have a daughter. You know, she's born. And I remember how excited we were, you know. And uh, he's like, man, I can't wait to go home and meet her, you know. And that's all I could do for the next two weeks was focus on that. So he wanted her to get home and get settled in with the baby and stuff. And he just didn't want to be in the midst of it, you know, coming home from Afghanistan. So he said, you go home, get settled and I'll take my two weeks of leave, you know? So he was scheduled to go home on leave on, and October 30th was the day that we were going to get him out of there. Where we were at, we couldn't really get a helicopter in and out of really. So there was a man-made mountain down there called Gundy Gar, and we we're going to get land to that mountain. We get a chopper, get him on a chopper and get him home. And, uh, I remember I was up in the guard tower that morning and, uh, my, uh, platoon sergeant came up there and he's like, Hey, do you, uh, do you want to try to get land of the mountain? And I was like, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, he's my best friend and I volunteer for everything. So yeah, I'm going, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I remember loading up and there was four trucks and my truck was the last truck. And, uh, um, Pagan was in my, was my, uh, driver. We had like a battalion medic and there was a guy in the gun. He was brand new there. His name was Vandenbosch. Didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know the guy. I mean, he literally been there like two or three days. And, uh, we take off and we have to go through this one village. And every time we went to this village, it was pretty, pretty wild, you know? And, uh, we we're coming into the town. I remember we seeing two guys running out in the fields and we're like, Oh man, <laughs> you know, here we go. And that's what I was kind of talking about earlier. You know, you'd see the things coming, you know, you see people, the women and children leaving out the backside of town. And you're like, Oh, you know, something's about to go down, you know, or you'd start seeing guys start showing up and you start seeing groups of guys, you know, shuffling around faster than they should and you're like oh it's on you know you could just there's just things that you could tell that, were, that when things were going to happen you know so we see these two guys run through the field and we're like oh here we go and we're just like push just go 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 and i remember we were going through the middle of town and the first truck goes over this culvert the next truck goes next truck goes over the culvert and the third truck's going over the culvert and it just gets blown to the moon you know and i was like oh man this is so bad like we're stuck in the middle of this town there's walls on both sides of us you know we're like we're like most fatal funnel you can possibly be in like we're in it you know and uh i remember stopping and i'm like oh boy because you know you a lot of times there, if there's one that goes off there's two you know <laughs> there's two there's probably six you know it just you know there always there's just always seems to be more were you driving i was driving yep i was the driver of my truck and uh um this truck had a had a crow system on it, we called it. It was just a gun on top of the truck, and you sat in the back seat, and you looked at a screen, and there was no actual physical gunner standing out of the truck like most trucks have. And uh, usually if a truck had hit an IED, the, the gunner would be like, hey, everybody's good in the truck, or nope, nobody's good, you know, thumbs down. And uh, we couldn't really get any signal out of them because, you know, you couldn't see anybody. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting trying to get them on the radio and no, they wouldn't answer back on the radio. And obviously, you know, your mind starts going to worst of the worst. And all of a sudden the hatch pops open on top and then you're like, Oh, thank God somebody's alive, you know? And I think it was my buddy Abbott. He crawls out and he gave us a thumbs up. So then I get on the radio and I report back like, Hey, you know, everybody's good. You know, 
they just gave us a thumbs up because the other trucks were, were the only ones that can really see them, you know, because the other trucks are, you know, still going forward, you know, and so he gives us a thumbs up and so everybody starts getting out and trying to pull security and, and figure out, assess how we're going to get out of here. And uh, I'm in the truck and I'm on the radio and they have me radio into battalion relaying, you know, um, what they want to say. And, and, uh, I remember like whenever you have a truck, you know, you do your fives, tens, fifteens, you're looking out each, each ring a little bit further looking for stuff that you don't want to step on, you know? And our goal and our plan ended up being everybody's jumping out and checking their areas. And, uh, I remember the plan was being, there's two different types of trucks that we had. We had two of each out there, an MATV and an MRAP. And uh, MATV had been hit, and there's one other MATV there, and they were much more powerful than the MRAPs were. And uh, we first tried hooking up an MRAP to this truck that had been blown up. We are just going to try to drag this thing to the edge of town. <laughs> we just didn't want to be in the, in the position that we were in, you know. And so they back up the truck to it, and they start trying to pull it, and the truck wouldn't go. And there's, there wasn't enough power. So like, hey, we have to hook up the other, the other truck. So they take jump in the other truck, and my buddy Land is down in the ditch. He's backing this truck up, you know, waving his arm, like, come on, back, back, back. And uh, I just remember coming back, and my buddy Ludwig had the door open like this. Or my buddy Corb did, and my buddy Ludwig is in the gun. And I just remember, like, watching Land wave back, and all of a sudden it was just, boom, he stepped right on that IED right there in the ditch. And uh, it just kind of hits you right then and there, like, you know what happened, you know, and you know the outcome is probably, what the outcome is probably going to be. And then you realize that everybody else is on the ground too. And it just starts adding up in your head. And I just pulled my foot inside the truck. I remember that door just slammed shut so hard. And uh, when that happened, I could look in the rearview mirror because that's kind of where I was looking, you know, already. And I seen his, his gear falling, you know. And I was like, man, this is bad. And uh, I seen him then laying there. I seen him come rolling out of there. And I knew he was dead right away. And... Um, my buddy Pagan came up and he's like, hey, where's land? Where's land? And I was like, ah, there's so many other guys wounded. I just remember telling him, like, hey, I'm not sure. Because I knew that there was nothing we could do. I mean, he was just, you could tell he was he was gone. And uh, they went. he went and started helping other guys. And I remember dropping the back gate and the medic got out. And I was on the radio calling for a medevac and everything. And and uh, we ended up getting him picked up and getting out of there and just getting everything cleaned up. And then getting out of there without any other... Uh, anything else extreme happening that day, you know, but, uh, you know, that was definitely my worst day in Afghanistan. You know, he took me under his wing when he, when I got to the 101st airborne division and he got me set up and taught me what, like, you know, at night I'd go over to his house and spend time with his wife and, and him and, and, uh, just gave me a place to hang out, you know, on the weekends and, and, uh, me and him were really close, you know, there was no question of who was together, you know, it was always me and land were together, you know, and that was, that really hurt that day, you know, and I knew that, it just never, it didn't really dawn on me until we got back to the base that night that he was never going to get to meet Riley and Riley was never going to get to meet her dad, you know? And that was definitely one that, that hurt for a long time, you know? It took me a long time to get over that one. And uh, that was for sure my worst day in Afghanistan. Wow. That is powerful. And um, it makes sense why it was. Yeah, for But it's sure. not what I thought your story was going to be, given yeah. your circumstances. Right. And, so. um, yeah, you know, and... and uh, you know, I don't know. I, I still today struggle trying to figure out what the what the lesson you know that through life is on that story itself. You know, and and uh, you know, I always I always just think, you know, I mean, uh, whenever I do get, you know, I do have my rough days sometimes. You know, and I always think to myself on those rough days, you know, there's a lot of people that like to trade positions with you. You know, and I always kind of 
take myself back to that day and think about how lucky and fortunate I am that, you know, um, you know, I went through a similar thing and, and, um, came out a lot differently, you know, and yeah. yeah, And that day was, uh, March 9th and we were working out of cop Amicon and, uh, (laughs) just like any other day, I was up in a guard tower, woke up at like three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, something like that. It was now like six or eight o'clock in the morning. And I just pulled off a guard shift and the sun was coming up and I had all my gear with me. You know, I had a rack of system that, you know, you throw over your neck and strap yourself and it had all my ammo in it and my night vision and all my stuff that I need with me on a mission. And whenever I was in the guard tower, you know, you really wouldn't want to wear that thing. It's so heavy. So, you know, I just slung it over your shoulder and carried it. And I had my, my saw in my other hand, my machine gun, I was carrying that. And uh, I came back to the tent and when he got to the edge of the tent, we had like this canopy over the edge of it, you know, strung out across the barrier and stuff like that. And we kind of uh, some shade, you know, and that's kind of where everybody hung out was out there because it was so hot in the tent during the day. And you needed a place like outside where you have a little bit of a breeze or some air moving and some um, relief from the sun. And we worked such weird hours over there. You know, we'd usually be on for about 20 hours a day and you'd have like four, four to six hours a day of rest for yourself, you know, to eat and sleep and, you know, do whatever you wanted to do for a couple hours, watch a movie or whatever, you know, but mostly sleep. And, uh, I remember like, uh, everybody was sitting outside the tent as I was coming in and I talked to those guys for a minute and, and, uh, found out everything was up on the whiteboard for the day. So I went in the tent and I looked at the whiteboard and I seen that I was going on patrol later on in the day. And I had had just a little bit of time time until we had to get ready for the mission. And I laid down on my bunk and took my boots off for a minute. And, uh, I was just sitting there and I think I dozed off for a little bit and I woke up and I was looking at my camera and I was going through pictures and deleting stuff. And for whatever reason, I just had a really weird feeling like, after I'd woken up, I just had this really uneasy, I can't even explain what it felt like. You know, you just have that, that feeling inside that something's about to happen, you know? Intuition. Yeah. That's the word. And, uh, for whatever reason, my feet were crossed up on the end of my bunk. In the last picture on my camera, when I got it back, I snapped a picture from my chest of my feet crossed on the end of my bunk. I just, for whatever reason, I felt the need to take that picture after I just deleted probably 30 pictures. I was like, why did I take this? Why did I take that? You know? Wow. So I took that picture and my buddy Hurley came by and he's like, Hey, we're getting ready to go on mission. We're going to do a briefing. I was like, all right. So I grabbed, so I jumped up, put my boots on, went out there, got the briefing for the mission. And, uh, we figured the Taliban had a cache of weapons and IED making materials and we were going to go steal it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so that was the goal for the day. And, uh, we had an idea of how we were going to get up there, how we were going to do it and so on. How long after your best friend Lance Oh, land. Yep. Land. Land. Yep. It was last name. L-A-N-D. Yep. L-A-N-D. Yep. I'm um, sorry about that. No, um, how long after Land's um, death was this particular? Yeah. So that happened in October and I should probably, I probably, I probably got to skip ahead a little bit too. Um, in October, that was in October. And then the fighting season had slowed down quite a bit, November, December, and then January kicked off again. And we fought a little bit through January, and then I always joke. I came home sometime between the Daytona 500 or the Super Bowl and the Daytona 500. That's how I keep track of things in my life. And uh, I was home for two weeks then. And uh, the the night before I went back to Afghanistan, I actually got on a knee. I always joke, the best thing I ever did, <laughs> last chance I ever had. You know, uh, I got down on a knee and I asked my wife to marry me and uh, for a ride to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> And she said yes, and uh, I went back to Afghanistan, and then uh, it took me a few days to get back to Afghanistan, and then literally this is 10 days later, March 9th okay. of 2011. 
Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should, I should have, I, I forgot that little part of my story. That's okay. Wife's going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's man. good. It's good. We backed yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. We want Megan yeah. to be happy. Yeah, Hi, Megan. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I'm back in country and I come out of the guard tower and, and uh, I go out and get my mission briefing and we're going to go steal this cache from the Taliban. And, uh, we found out my team was going to, not my team, Sergeant Hurley's team, who I was on the team that I was on my team. Um, I was a saw gunner on that team and we had a team leader and then two riflemen. And then there was another team behind us. I think there was two teams out there. And then we had a, a, a gun squad, which is just a machine gun team that rolls out wherever you need them. And then a few other assets like a radio guy, uh, I think the lieutenant, uh, I think our first sergeant actually came with us that day. Just a, just a, a mix of people. Is there ever a sandwich guy? <laughs> just asking. I just, we've had that fans be the that chef. wanted to ask that. That was a submitted question. <laughs> that would be the cook. He never really rolled out with us. He, he always want to keep okay. him safe. Okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> it makes sense. The question never. was submitted by me because that was always going to be my role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't want the cook getting hurt. <laughs> <laughs> never trust a skinny cook. Either. If anything bad ever happens, he's the first guy that gets dope on top of, you know, <laughs> saving the cook. <laughs> And, uh, so we rolled out and, uh, obviously we had a medic with us too. That's kind of an important part of the story, I guess. And, uh, uh, we got up to the, to the edge of this village and, uh, there was this big berm on the North end of town. And, uh, my team leader says, Hey, run up on that berm and make sure there's not a bunch of other guys laying there inside of that right ambush us, you know? So I run up on top of that berm and, and like I said, you know, you see things that you know are indicators of things that are about to come. And I see two guys running into town and I'm like, oh, <laughs> there's the guys we're looking for. I got him. He goes, watch what buildings to go into. So I'm sitting up there watching the buildings to go into and I look and all of a sudden as I'm watching these buildings, these guys are looking into, I look down and there's a, there's a head of an IED just sticking out like an old shell casing and I can just see the head of it. It's just red. And right away, I was like, oh, no, I got to move, you know. And I got off of that and I ran all the way down to the end of the berm while still keeping an eye on those buildings those guys ran into. And so I yelled at Sergeant Hurley, hey, there's an ID up here. So he runs up there. He takes a charge of C4. He runs up there, throws it on top of it, blows it up. And as soon as he blows it up, <laughs> they think we're shooting at them. There's <laughs> so full-out gunfight ensues. And those buildings those guys ran into, we got them pinned in those rooms. And uh, pretty good at gunfight. And I had a guy that got around on me to my left. I started seeing rounds skipping across me and I was like, Oh, I got a guy over here. So I thought I got him. And then we were going back to the doorways and we were fighting there. And, and then, um, all of a sudden he got around behind me. And uh, as soon as the helicopters came on, came in, they, they cleaned up everything that was going on that day. And, uh, we hung out for a little bit. And since they didn't shoot at us with anything too extreme, we weren't going to go into town chasing after what they were shooting at us with. We were just going to head back grab more water and maybe take another, another approach to getting up here and getting in to find this cache. And, uh, they said, we're going to do a reverse order movement and we're going to head back to our, to our base and grab more ammo, water and such, you know? And so that meant my, my, my grip is in the back now. And, um, so we started pushing up along this ditch, um, to the North. And, uh, I was the last guy to cross the river. Then we found a place to cross this, this little ditch. I shouldn't even call it a river, it's a ditch. And, uh, everybody jumped across it and I was the last guy to jump across and, and uh, I was running off to the left flank then, which was on the edge of town. And uh, I remember running literally in my buddy Abbott's footsteps. <laughs> that's how we, I mean, you do that over there. I mean, if somebody already stepped there, that's a good chance that you can step there, you know. And I was running in his footsteps. And uh, I remember my team leader yelling, hey, I think they're going to hit us again, you know, as, as I'm kind of getting caught up and getting out to my flank. And I said, hey, Sergeant Hurley, where do you think they're going to hit us from? 
And he goes, I don't know, Jackie boy. I don't wham. I stepped around top of that IED out there in that wide open field. And uh, I remember flipping through the air a lot. Like, I just remember, like, you know, just flipping and flipping and flipping. And it felt like a dream. You know, if you're having a dream and, you know, you feel like you can't wake up because you're, when you're falling, you know, and that's really what it felt like. You know, I was like, man, am I ever going to hit the ground, you know? And I always joke, thank God I landed on my neck because that's all I had left to land on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I landed on my neck and my shoulder. I remember feeling my shoulder pop. And uh, I was looking over here up at the left side of my arm, and the whole back side of my arm is completely blown out. And uh, I was having a really hard time seeing them. I remember, like, looking at that, and I was trying to look at my arm because that's kind of what my eyes were looking at when I landed. And I was kind of staring at it, and I seen a lot of blood, and I was like, man, I need to get a tourniquet. But I couldn't see out of my glasses because I didn't realize at the time where there's so much blood and mud speared on them already that I couldn't see out of them, you know? I couldn't hear anything. I remember that. My ears were buzzing so bad. I couldn't hear anything. And I just remember like looking around and like trying to figure out what was going on. And I couldn't see over my gear, you know, so I couldn't even see my the lower half of my body, you know. And uh, I was, I just remember uh, thinking I needed to get a tourniquet on my, on my left arm. That's bleeding pretty bad. And so I was trying to, I was trying to reach back with my left hand to get to my first aid kit, but my shoulder had broke when I landed. So I couldn't. I couldn't get back to my first aid kit, but I knew I had another one in my night vision pouch. <laughs> so I was trying to dig my night vision pouch out while I was trying to still assess my left arm. And uh, I couldn't get that, I couldn't get that pouch open. And I was like, what in the heck is going on? You know, so I looked over and my arm right in the middle of my forearm was at a 90 degree angle hanging straight down. And every time my heartbeat, I could see my blood pumping out the backside of my arm, you know. And I was like, man, this is <laughs> this is a really bad situation to be. I've never needed a tourniquet so bad in my life, and I don't have a hand to put it on with, you know, either arm, you know. I had no idea my legs were hurt yet. And uh, I just remember thinking, laying there thinking, well, <laughs> I know how we fight, you know. We go end the fight, and then we take care of the wounded. I mean, that's that's how we've always done it, you know. And uh, my buddy Daniels, all of a sudden I seen him out of the corner of my eye running at me. And uh, he comes sliding in and jumped around right top of me and uh, immediately dumped open my first aid kit. And uh, I just remember looking at him and seeing how, how concerned or frantic he was, you know. And uh, <laughs> it didn't have necessarily make me feel any better except for the fact that he was there, you know. And uh, he started turning kitting my arms off for me. And while he was doing that the whole time, I was like, man, you got to get off me, man. You're, <laughs> you're sitting right on my boys, you know. I was feeling a lot of pressure on my boys, you know. <laughs> And uh, he's he's just sitting there and he keeps trying to keep my arms off. And I was like, man, you really got to get off my stuff. You know, it's really starting to hurt, you know. And he's like, no, man, I got to stay here in this crater with you, you know. And what he was doing is he had his knees in my femoral arteries on my legs, trying to pinch those off with his knees, you know, just putting pressure on them while he's trying to keep my arms. And then Doc comes sliding in on my right side. And uh, I remember him cutting my gear off of me then with the scissors right away. And then he pulled this tab on our plates, and we have this tab that, like, if you find somebody in my situation, you can get their body armor off really quick. Or if you find yourself upside down in a truck in a canal and, you, you know, you're underwater, you can ditch your body armor really quick. So that's basically what it's there for. It just falls apart, you know. So Doc pulls that tab and takes my plates off. And uh, I remember more and more people started showing up then and getting to me. And... Uh, as soon as Doc took my plate off, I sat up because I wanted to get out of there <laughs> and find my gun and just move to cover because we're taking rounds now out in the middle of this plowed field, no cover, no concealment, and IED just went off. It's like the last place you really want to be. And uh, I was I remember looking down as soon as I sat up because I wanted to get out of there, and I was like went to sit up, and I realized that my right leg had been just completely tore off, you know, like pretty close to my hip, you know. 
And I was like, man, that is not good. And I looked at my left leg and I see my left leg was still there, but my, there was no meat from like the knee down. It was just gone. And my boot was still on <laughs> good pair of boots. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I just remember like it, my leg looked like a Halloween decoration, you know, like my bone was so bright white and it was just like, just pure bone. And I remember looking at my guys thinking, do you think I can hop on that? Cause I thought if I could get, if I could have two guys could carry me to a chopper instead of four guys carrying me on a litter, you know? And I just remember Doc being like, nah, I don't, I don't think so. You know, it's pretty tough shape. Were you in, uh, in, in a, not to interrupt your story. Yeah, no, so, well, I am interrupting yeah. your story, but were you in pain? Do you remember being in oh, pain? Do you think yeah, it, it shock or yeah, I know it hurt? Like, <laughs> it definitely, yeah. yeah, it definitely hurt. Oh, well, I mean, I think Aaron and I both are just amazed at the fact that you're coherent and having conversations about progressing at this point. Cause it, uh, we would imagine you just be an absolute pass shock. Out, pass yeah, you have out so much shock. adrenaline going on. I mean, we just got out of a gunfight, you know, you're in another one and you can't really do anything, you know, you're ready to, you're ready to make a move, you know? And I just, I just knew that we were in a really bad situation and, me being a, me being there wounded in the middle of a field was putting a, a lot of other people too in danger, you know? Wow. So I'm laying there and <laughs> finally some, they get off my boys and they start putting tourniquets on my left leg. Cause that's a pretty easy situation. I still had so much of my leg left, you know, on that side, but my right side was really the, <laughs> was the part that was probably going to get me that day. And thank God Doc had a ratchet strap style tourniquet with him and he put it around what was left of my leg. <laughs> he reached up inside of me and grabbed every piece of meat that he could and just pulled. And they took that ratchet strap and ratcheted my leg down. And I just remember how, and honestly, it sounds crazy, but that probably hurt the most out of, any, out of anything, you know, was that strap, you know, going around my leg and just, they're just pinching that thing down as hard as I could get it. I remember like uh, the surge that I got of energy from, those guys, the success of them getting that tourniquet on and how they felt about it made me feel a lot better. You know, they're like, yes, 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 we got it. You know, like it's slowing down. Like it's not bleeding like it was, you know, and hearing those things were really getting me motivated. And I could hear those guys over my left shoulder calling in the medevac, you know, and I knew the help was going to be on the way, you know, quick. <clears throat> and uh, I could start hearing a little bit, you know, it's still really hard to hear, but I could still start hearing a little bit. And, uh, um, I just remember just being so thirsty, you know, I was so thirsty. I just wanted something to drink so bad. And I kept telling Doc, I was like, Doc, Doc, give me a drink, you know? And he's like, I can't give you any water right now. No, like, you don't get any water, you know? And finally I said to him, like, and as I was getting more and more tired, I was like, Doc, I do not want to die this thirsty. <laughs> this is this is cruel and unusual, you know? Like, And he finally just wet down some gauze and he threw it in the corner of my mouth for me and let me suck on that, you know? And that was giving me some relief. And I still kept getting more and more tired as these guys were working on me. And, uh... I just remember I had, I just couldn't really talk anymore. I just didn't have the energy to even talk anymore. And, uh, we were talking about some of the most ridiculous stuff before that. Like, uh, you know, we're my buddy, me and Daniels were going to move in together. And he's like, you're still bringing the couch. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still bringing the couch. Like, you're just trying to find anything to talk about, you know, just as try to keep me awake in there, you know? And finally I said, I just can't talk anymore. And I just remember telling myself left, right, left, right. And just shaking my head left, right, left, right. Just trying to stay awake. And that's what I was focused on. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I thought, man, if I'm going to say something, I got to say something now because I'm never going to be able to say anything the rest of my life. You know, I thought I was at the end of my life at this point. And I just remember looking at my guys and being like, hey, uh, just tell everybody I love them. It's something I could get out, you know. I was just, I was hurting so bad. And I was like, you know, if I, if I want anybody to know anything from here on out, I just want them to know that I love them, you know. And uh, I just remember like, 
seeing my whole life start flashing before my eyes then. You know, everything just kind of slowed down. I remember stuff is like four or five years old, probably were some of my youngest memories. All the way up until just days before getting wounded. I mean, <laughs> all the best times in my life. And it was all things that it was never like a car. You know, it was friends inside of a car, you know, and it was never a fish house. It was all the people inside the fish house. You know, you didn't, <clears throat> when you had these visions, you weren't seeing things. You were seeing experiences. You were seeing people. You were seeing the, the things that you feel emotion from, you know, in this world that we live in. And uh, I kind of realized what was super important to me at that point in my life and what really mattered. And uh, all of a sudden I heard this woof, 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 woof. And I was like, oh, man, that's a chopper. You know, I can't be the guy that dies right when that thing gets here. And I just remember reaching down with everything I possibly had and just trying to draw in a breath. I mean, I was that low on energy. I was that close to death that I just I had to focus on just trying to breathe, you know. And I just remember drawing in a breath and I just inhaled with everything I had. <laughs> and looking back now, it probably wasn't much of a breath, but it's what I needed, you know. And I remember getting a little bit of air in. And at the same time, I realized that Doc is trying to stab a needle in the side of my neck, trying to get an IV going for me. But I was so out of blood at this point that every time he hit a vein with a needle, it would just collapse it, you know. There was just no way he was going to get an IV started on me at this point. And uh, they rolled me up, and they set me on this litter. <laughs> and I looked down, and there's my foot sitting right on my stomach. And I'm like, oh, man. And I remember getting bounced across that field, and it was honestly the worst experience of that day. It was, it was so painful. It hurt so bad. I was pretty much dead already. And... They slid me in the chopper, and I remember seeing Hurley already sitting in the chopper, and I was like, oh, man, I thought he was dead. And uh, I thought I, I thought from the blast something killed him, you know. And uh, I remember looking up at me, and I was like, oh, thank God, you know. And what happened is a big hunk of steel come flying out of there and bounced off his shoulder and his head and gave him a super back concussion and broke his shoulder and shattered it or whatever. And, and uh, they already throwing him on the chopper. And I remember looking up at him and I remember feeling so bad, you know, that I stepped on that and he got hurt from it, you know, but I was so thankful he was alive. And, uh, I remember us, I mean, I could hear the rounds just ripping off the chopper and the flight medic, um, and doc were talking and I remember doc yelling, I put two tourniquets on each limb and the flight medic goes, I don't give a shit. We got to go, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, I remember the door slamming shut and the bird and we were just up and off. We were out. And uh, I was laying there on the floor, and I just remember looking up at the ceiling, you know, and if you ever ridden a Black Hawk before, it's very, it's a very distinct feeling. It's a, it's a very consistent shake, you know, and uh, I remember feeling that, and uh, I, uh, the flight medic jumped on top of me, and they were these, these things over their face so they can breathe in the wind, you know, and he took this thing off, and I remember him yelling at me and reading his lips that this is going to hurt, <laughs> And I kind of laughed, you know, inside, you know, I was like, right, well, what can you do to me at this point that's going to hurt, you know? And I felt like I was pretty much dead already. And he punched his deal right into my sternum, uh, right into the bone. That's how he's going to start giving me fluids since he knew he wasn't going to be able to find a vein. <clears throat> and as soon as he punched that deal into my sternum, I about jumped off that litter. I was like, dang, I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm so alive. And uh, I remember bringing out a bag of saline basically over the top of me, just pumped that right into my body. <clears throat> and by the time we landed at the airfield, I was able to tell him my name, my social, you know, and just <laughs> any information that he wanted, you know, I, was, I just felt pretty good. You know, I could talk enough to tell him those things. And we landed on the airfield and we had done many, many, many air assaults where we'd load up in a helicopter, go land somewhere, run a mission, jump on a helicopter and leave, you know. And uh, that was kind of what we were known for. That's what the 101st does now. And uh, 
um, I remember landing on the airfield that day at the hospital, and I remember hearing that helicopter shut all the way down. All the times I'd rode on a helicopter, I'd never, ever heard it shut all the way completely off. And I was like, wow. And it kind of like listening to those rotors slow down and come to a complete stop kind of gave me a minute to reflect on everything that had already happened to me that day and a chance to kind of yeah. just appreciate how far I've gotten up to this point, you know, after everything I've been through. And uh, I always joke the chaos really started as soon as the door to that chopper ripped open. They ripped that door to the chopper open and they slid me out of the back of the helicopter into the back of this truck. And uh, I'll never forget it. My surgeon was on the right side and my anesthesiologist was on my left. And uh, the anesthesiologist was talking to me first and he goes, are you allergic to anything? And I was like, yes, penicillin. <laughs> and he's like, not really worried about that right now. Uh, he's like, <laughs> I was more worried about other stuff like anesthesia and stuff like that. And I was like, but I am because I don't have any hands right now. And if I get hives, <laughs> I'm going to be really upset. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I remember, I remember telling him just penicillin. And um, he's like, all right, not really worried about that right now. And the surgeon was on the other side of me and he's checking me out and he looks at me, looks at me dead in the eyes. I've never, I've never believed in a person honestly more in my life is when he looked at me, he looked me in the eyes and he said, if you can stay awake for five more minutes, I'll promise you your life. Wow. And I was like, deal, <laughs> you know, what are the details of that particular comment? I think, I don't know if he honestly believed it or not. I think that he wanted me to believe him. Uh, I think that he really did think I had a chance with it just being my limbs and, that I could still talk at the point that I was still there, you know, that I think he really thought that he could save me. But I think I mentally too, I needed that, that confidence. Like, all right, <laughs> you think you got a shot at this? I'll give you a shot. I can stay over five minutes. Yeah. You know? And that's kind of where the title of my book came from, you know, and it kind of gave me the, for the rest of my life, I realized that I can do anything, <laughs> you know, for a short amount of time, you know, I can endure anything for a short amount of time. You know, I can, if I need to do something, I can do it, you know? And that's really what I learned. And and a lot of times what I've also learned is I just need something to somebody to believe in me sometimes, you know? And sometimes I think that's everybody, you know? Like we're all we all chase goals, we all do things, and we may believe in ourselves at the end of the day, but damn it, it feels good to have somebody else believe in you, you know? Yeah. And when you're in a situation like that where you think you're at the end of your life and, and you you know, you want to have so much more to go in this life, you know, and somebody tells you, Man, you stay away for five more minutes, I got you, you know. I was like, let's do this, you know. Remember that truck backing up to those doors and I could hear the beeping and um, the doors of those trucks popped open then. And I remember them carrying me out on the litter. And we, whenever we trained in the army, you know, you always practice training, you know, <laughs> before we got to Afghanistan, you know, and we'd always carry your buddies on the litter. Well, one of the things you always did at the end of the training then is whoever's on the litter, you'd always just dump, <laughs> dump them off. You know, it was just kind of the joke you always did. And for whatever reason, they're pulling me out of that <laughs> that truck, and all I could think about was my buddies dumped me on the <laughs> And I remember setting me down in this two wheel car, and uh, we start going down the hallway, and it was like light, 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 hard, right? And uh, they pulled me in the operating room, and um, I still joke today. You know, we have the world's greatest fighter jets. You know, we have the world's greatest missiles. I mean, we have the world's greatest technology. We do not have heated operating room tables. <laughs> when they pulled me <laughs> off that litter and put me on that operating room table, I remember about just the first time I ever jumped without legs. It was so cold. <laughs> and uh, there was a nurse on my left, and uh, she's the one I remember the most. She was uh, she was started shaving my chest, you know, and putting all these stickers all over my body and stuff and trying to get a heart rate, you know, and all that stuff on me. And I remember there were so many people around me, and I could hear all this packaging getting opened up and, like, these air tools going off and stuff. And... Uh, 
um, people just screaming numbers and all this chaos. And um, I remember all, even though there's so many people around me, I felt so alone, you know, cause I have, I mean, for the last, as long as I've been in the military, I had a battle buddy with me, you know, no matter where you go, you always have somebody with you, you know, that, you know, you know, and for the first time in a long time, I didn't, I didn't know anybody that I was with, you know, I remember feeling so alone and I just feeling, wanting to feel acknowledged really bad. That was really what I, the feeling that I was having. And uh, I remember looking at the nurse and I remember telling her, the only thing I could think to say to her was to start a conversation was, you know, this is the first bone I ever broke. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the first thing I could think to tell the nurse. And uh, she's like, well, you broke a lot of them. That's, all she, that's what she said to me. She's like, well, you broke a lot of them. And uh, it felt so good, honestly. It made me feel like I was alive still. You know, and uh, all of a sudden the anesthesiologist, he came over and he's putting this mask on me. And I remember fighting him. I was shaking my head and uh, he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, hey, I had a deal right now that uh, five minutes, you know, <laughs> with, with the surgeon. He kind of like <laughs> smirked and he's like, hey, doc, you know, and he kind of waves him over and doc comes over and he's like, hey, man, your five minutes is up. And uh, he goes, so you can start counting. The anesthesiologist says, start counting back from 10 for me. All right. And uh, I didn't say anything. I, what I thought was, screw you, man. My last, my last thought on this earth is not going to be one, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I started thinking about all the things that i seen on the battlefield that day when my life flashed before my eyes, all the greatest times in my life. And uh, I just remember going to sleep to that. And uh, the next time I woke up was six days later in San Antonio. Um, I had, didn't know that they had moved me. <laughs> I thought I was still in Afghanistan, and I took a three-hour nap, you know. And uh, the first time I woke up, I remember seeing a nurse leave the room. And I was like, hey, never mind, <laughs> you know. And uh, the next time, I still had the ventilator in. Uh, the next time I woke up, I still had the ventilator. Oh, I did not have the ventilator in. But I remember waking up, and I remember seeing my family around me. And I remember closing my eyes so fast. Because I was almost, almost in shock. And I remember thinking to myself, what are you guys doing in Afghanistan? Because <laughs> I, had, I had no idea that I was moved, you know. And... Uh, the next time I woke up, they kept me awake. And I remember everybody talking to me then around the bed, you know, they were all standing around me and I really don't even know what they were saying, honestly. But finally, I remember, I think it was my dad saying to me, Jack, can you just say something so we know that you can hear us, you know? And, and everybody around me sounded like, you know, if you ever watch Snoopy, all the wah, 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 wah. That's kind of what it was like, you know, all these voices around me, I'm just talking and I couldn't understand anything. And finally I heard my dad say that. And uh, I just remember the first thing that I said was, what do I have to do to get the hell out of here? I did not want to be in the hospital. Give me a punch list. <laughs> what I got to do to get out of here, you know? And I remember them being like, well, you're going to be here for a little bit. You know, you're pretty banged up. And uh, I just remember laying there for a minute and kind of reflecting on what, trying to remember everything that had kind of happened, you know? And I remember, I remember like uh, very big segments, you know, the first thing that came back to my mind was the helicopter. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah that's right. I got medevaced out. Why did I, well, I was on a helicopter again. I was like, oh yeah, we were in that gunfight. And then I kind of, then I kind of filled in the middle and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. The IED, you know? And then, uh, I remember just being in the hospital, like just being in there. And some of the, some of the things that, um, you know, you, you don't ever think of, you know, I mean, you, you don't ever think of being wounded, you know, you either think you're going to come home in one piece or you're going to come home in a box, you know, you don't ever think of the in between, you know, and you never prepare for that. Um, me and my wife always talk about that. That's one thing that we never had a conversation about, you know, I mean, we talked about if something had happened to me over there or, you know, if our, if our act came home, we were, we we're going to get married, you know, I mean, it was one or the other, you know, and we never talked about getting wounded. And um, when she was there, when I woke up, I was honestly not surprised, but 
I wouldn't have blamed her if she didn't show up. You know what I mean? She was 18 going to college, you know, like how was she supposed to drop everything in her life to come put mine back together, you know, but, um, you know, love definitely came out of that one and, and she was there and, and, um, I can never repair her for what she did for me or being by my side. And she's by far the most loyal life, loyal wife anybody could ever ask for. And no matter what kind of situation I find myself in, I know I can count on her. And, uh, she was there and she spent, uh, the whole time I was in the ICU for two weeks. I went through almost 20 operations during that time or not that time, but total one the six, eight weeks that I was in the hospital. Um, I had to have my basically my whole stomach's gun to put the skin of my arms, you know, back on. And uh, um, they took off. Well, that was first uh, amputated through the knee on my left side. And then they took it up four more inches to get myself a clean amputation. And the first, honest, honestly, the first couple of surgeries were just trying to wash all the mud and debris and shrapnel out of me. Uh, I had so much of that packed in me. And, and they had did some of that on my way back to... Texas, you know, and every time they try washing me out in Bagram or Launch Stool, um, Germany, they would, whenever they try washing me out, my vitals would plummet. I would about die. And then they'd be like, we got them stable again. Just get them home, you know? And, uh, no, I'm super lucky for the, for the doctors that had put me together. You know, my red arm, they saved this thing. You know, there's just a small piece of skin, two inches wide, holding this arm on initially. And, that would have been one snip of the scissors and you know, that arm would have been closed up, but he wanted to save my arm for me, you know? And one of the funniest stories about that is uh, when he's putting it back together, I was like, man, what if it hurts or it doesn't feel good or it's not right? He's like, well, I'll just cut it off then, <laughs> you know? And oh, geez, yeah. Simple as that, you know? And uh, I had just really the best team of doctors. Once I woke up in San Antonio, I never wondered if I was going to survive or not. You know, I mean, I knew that I was in the best care possible and was, it, was there one particular, you said 20, 20 surgeries, Jack. Yeah. Was there one in particular that um, stands out more than, than something else that maybe was the most painful? Yeah, the grafting. The grafting. When from they took your, all from the, your yeah, stomach. Yeah, they took all the skin from my stomach. I mean, that skin that they took from my stomach, I mean, that was, they put this, like, bandage over it, you know, and then you have to peel it off and, you know, and you have to cut it off, you know, and stuff. And it was just, they had heating lamps on me to dry them out and... It was just so, I mean, the, the grafts were so painful because every time you had like twist or adjust in bed, it would just burn everywhere, you know? Yeah. And uh, I needed so much skin that um, they really didn't know where they're going to get more from because I needed to lay on my back, you know, because they had skin both of my sides already yeah. in my front and they couldn't really put me on my stomach to take more grafting off my back, <laughs> you know? And so they ended up stretching my skin far enough to to making it work from what they took and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, everything was plated and screwed together on my arms. You know, I got a rod down my whole entire right arm. My left arm was all plated and screwed together because, you know, it's not like you can put my arms in a cast and let them right. heal. You know, you have to screw them all together, you know, and my right leg was super short and they had to stretch the skin big time down there to get that to close. And, you know, I mean, there's things like I learned going through there that, you know, you can't put a value on. Like, um, I thought I was going to get out of the hospital. <laughs> I had a plan. I had been in there so long already. And I just wanted to get out and just get on with life. No matter what life was going to look like moving forward, I just wanted to get on with it. I really felt like I was just, like, I was just going to sit in this hospital forever, you know? Yeah. And I just want to get out and move on. And, and uh, I had everything set up. I was, was going to move out in like three days, four days. Maybe it was even less than that. And uh, my wife was helping give me a bath one night. And so she finished up giving me my bath and she's like, Jack, it looks like you peed the bed here. And I was like, no, I just got my catheter out, you know? So everything starts going through my mind. I'm like, Oh my God, what's wrong with me? You know? 
And all of a sudden she, she changes the sheets or whatever. And she's cool about it. And all of a sudden she's like, Jack, I think you did it again. And I was like, no way. Like there is something going on. What happened is one of my stitch holes had busted open and I had such a bad infection that it was running out of my stitch hole in my leg. And uh, right away, a doctor comes up and he's like, yep, we definitely got to go in and operate on this. Like, we're going to have to go into surgery. And I'm like, but I'm supposed to get out in like, you know, three or four days, you know? And I was like, this is complete BS, you know? I was like, okay, so that's kind of where I learned my lesson in life. You, there's only so many things you can control in your life, you know? And I could have found so many reasons in that that situation to be upset. Like I'd been, I've gone through hell already. I've, I've felt like I checked every box that's supposed to check for you to let me out of here. You know, now I'm, I'm sitting here and you're telling me I'm not going to be going home. Cause I gotta have or finding a new, new home, essentially getting out of here because I have an infection in my leg. But then I was like, well, thank God I'm in the hospital. They caught it. They can operate on me in the morning. They have a plan. <laughs> you know, like I started thinking about all these things and I was like, all right, there's worse, there's worse things that could happen out of this, you know? And, and one of the other major lessons I learned in the hospital is the first time you do anything is the hardest. You know, we're always, as humans, we're so afraid to take that leap, you know? Uh, just like jump out of the plane for the first time, you know? <laughs> the first time you jump out of the plane, you're like, well, I hope I remember everything because if I don't, it's, it's too late, you know? <laughs> and the first time we do anything is the hardest. Well, my left arm was so broken that I couldn't, my first goal was just to touch my nose. As soon as I could touch my nose, I could eat again. I could drink again. I could brush my teeth. I could do something for myself again. And I just remember spending so many days just trying to touch my nose and how impossible it was and how easy it is today, you know? And, and it just is a great reminder every day that like when I'm struggling and or I'm trying to figure out something or whatever it is, sometimes I'll literally just touch my nose to remind myself that, you know, there's one point in your life where your ultimate goal in life was just to touch your nose. It sounds so simple and ridiculous, but that's all I had to do, you know? Yeah. And like today, whatever today's mission is, I just have to touch my nose, you know, and just have to keep moving, you know, put that, no pun intended, but one foot in front of the other and just keep moving, you know? Could almost that's be crazy. the title of another book, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like, even though that's, yeah. that comes across as funny, it really could, you know, I get well, about it. Well, I'm going to take a moment here, Jack, and we'll be right back with you to do a shout out to our fantastic drink sponsor, uh, Chan Casca Ranch. Uh, Shankaska Creek Ranch Winery and Distillery. Thank you, Wes. Um, they have been a partner with us since the beginning and in the inception of the Get Deep podcast. Tonight, we are, of course, sipping on some deliciousness with Jack Zimmerman. Uh, Jack, you are sipping on the Road Ranch Whiskey. Yeah, the Ranch Road uh, Whiskey. I'm sorry, Ranch Road Whiskey. That's yeah. all good. Uh, deliciousness from them. Um, they, of course, are known for their wines that are awesome. So uh, smooth. It's good. It is solid. I forgot the ice tonight because we switched uh, <laughs> we switched great. locations, but we're we're sipping it neat because we're yeah. you know I'd like to think neat gentlemen here. <laughs> um, Wes and I started off with a little bit of um, Marquette Reserve or Reserve Marquette, and then we switched a little bit to the uh, straight bourbon, uh, which you know, hey, don't judge us. We like good things, uh, but it is awesome. smooth, and um, it's such a pleasure to be. Uh, sponsored for our drink sponsor from Chain Casco, a place that not only is known for their delicious um, wine and their Ranch Road series, but also as a venue that can um, host your wedding or special event or live music. This time of the year, we're we're recording this episode with Jack in late September. And if you want to see some beautiful, beautiful grounds in Southern Minnesota, go out there. Oh, and get a pizza. I get it's a so pizza. Good. Yeah. So you get, so you good. and Megan get a chance oh. to go out there every once in a while. Yeah, we get a chance. Yeah. We get a break away even for an hour or two. It's like, yeah. that's, 
just a good place to unwind. It's so peaceful and the food is so good. And you ever do a cheese bread? Uh, no, I haven't. You have to try that next time. <laughs> it's almost as good as the pizza. Bucket list item. Delicious. Love it. I love it. I one of my favorite things, honestly, is to to sit around that beautiful bonfire pit they have. Yes. I'm a huge bonfire person, yeah. and uh, it's so great with that that casota stone right there, yeah. and uh, it, it's just the whole ambiance is great. So, thank you to Shane Casca for your sponsorship. Surely appreciate it. And uh, back to Jack yeah. and your story. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you um, a couple things here, and we'll continue, but. Uh, how many people in your situation would you say, I know you can't answer yeah, with, right. with total accuracy here, but with what you went through being that you're closer to other veterans, um, and have, have traveled and, and spoke uh, about your story would have survived what you went through. I mean, you're here, uh, you survived, you're able to inspire people, but, uh, if you had to give any, any sort of number or statistic or anything like that. I mean, what you went through is it is is pretty rare that you're sitting here today talking to us. Yeah, having all four limbs, you know, catastrophically wounded. Um yeah, I mean I'm pretty I'm I'm extremely lucky to be here. You know, uh I honestly believe if I wouldn't have been conscious, you know, if I if I would have got knocked out, I don't think I would be here. Um I don't know. I definitely had something looking out for me that day. You know, um don't, I mean, I'm a firm believer and I have a lot of faith, you know, and, uh, I feel like I'm still supposed to be here for some reason, you know? And, um, I don't know what that reason is. I don't know if any of us ever really understand fully what our purpose is here on earth. Maybe some people do, so, uh, but I feel like there's still more for me to do here. You know, I still, there's still, I still feel so much fire inside of me. I love sharing my story. I, I love inspiring other people because it inspires me, you know I mean? Uh, I, I do so much, I try to do so much for other people now. I really do because I realize how important that is <laughs> for some people. You know, I mean, if it's such an incredible outpouring, not just for me, but my entire family, my wife, if it wouldn't have been for those people, my life would have been much more difficult to get back together. You know, I, I mean, I believe I still could have done it, but it made it a lot easier. I mean, there was, they literally had a joke um, on my floor, you know, that I'd have a mail cart, I had my own mail cart, you know, from people sending letters <laughs> and stuff to me, encouraging me to keep going, you know, was there any particular letter or some sort of correspondence that sticks out more than, more than others that inspired you on your journey to recovery? When I was in, uh, when I left Fort Campbell, I had this little white knit cross that I found underneath my chair and it was just sitting underneath my chair for no reason. I asked everybody around me, Hey, is this anybody's? And, uh, Everybody responded, no, it's not mine, no. <laughs> so I thought, oh, whatever, I'll stick it in my pocket. And once I got on the plane, I pulled it open, and it was this little white-knit cross, and on it there was a little passage on there that said, hey, you know, I keep this in my pocket for only me to see. It's a reminder that every time I reach in my pocket, like, God is with me, you know? And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know? And <laughs> where I'm going and what I'm doing might not be a bad thing to carry with me, you know? And uh, I ended up throwing it in an old dip can and carrying it around with me, and because I just had to keep it dry and protected, you know, walking through canals and stuff. And it was staying that old dip can. It would stay dry. And every time I needed a little reminder, I just, you know, it was right there in my pocket, you know. And uh, when I got blown up, that was one of the first things I seen laying next to me on the dirt was that cross sitting there. And uh, when I woke up in San Antonio, I asked everybody, I was like, hey, does anybody know where my cross is? You know, my guys would call me. I'd be like, hey, did anybody see my cross out there, you know? And nobody knew where it was. And uh, eventually I ended up getting a piece of mail. 
that uh, was the same cross, you know, same passage, same everything, you know. And uh, I just kind of was a reminder that if you ask the universe long enough for something, <laughs> you know, sooner or later, it always seems to deliver, you know. And uh, I still have that cross today that I got in the mail. And I, it holds a special place to me, you know. And uh, it's just uh, it's just a reminder that if we keep sticking to our goals and we stick to our mission and we keep working hard every day at whatever it is that we're trying to achieve, uh, the universe will always help us out too in a little, you know, in some way or form, shape or form. Amen. Yeah. I love that. Um, that's a great story. Yeah. Probably it's, one uh, of my favorites that I've heard in a really, really long time. Yeah. And, uh, man, I, uh, listening to you, Jack, it's, it's just hard to imagine the holding that positivity, positivity and, and that whole thing through such a traumatizing, shocking, difficult situation. Um, it, it's crazy to me, really. Yeah. I, I like to think of myself as a pretty optimistic, positive person, yeah. but I can't imagine going through what you've went through and then still holding that mentality the whole time through. And so being that, you know, obviously mental health is a big thing that's in the forefront of our world right now, which is a positive thing. And, and obviously something that is um, a challenging spot for veterans like yourself and especially combat veterans. Uh, can you speak at all to the mental health issue that a lot of people in your situation or maybe that weren't um, necessarily injured like you right. coming back from things that they've seen combat um, the worst in humanity, if you will. Um, can you speak at all to that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I take mental health incredibly seriously. Um, I've lost a lot of friends to suicide now. Um, for me personally, I, I always look at, at my, my, my attitude is my choice, right? Like if I, <clears throat> Every day when I wake up, the first thing I have to do every day is check my attitude because the first thing I have to do is crawl in my wheelchair. It's a constant reminder of all the things that I've had, that I've had, you know, the, some of the worst things that I've had happen to me or some of the worst times in my life was going through there. But right then and there, I make a choice every day that today is going to be a great day. You know, that today is going to be, you know, <laughs> I, that everything that happens to me is, is my fault, good or bad. I will take acceptance for whatever happens. You know, uh, I will take the fruits of my hard work and I'll also take the, the lumps of my bad luck. You know, the right. things that come my way, I'm going to accept that are, <laughs> that are earned. And, and, uh, you know, every day I wake up, I have to realize that today is, a, is, is my choice on how today is going to go. And, uh, I just look at it as so many things that happen in our lives. You can always find positives in just about everything that happens to you, you know? And, uh, People ask me all the time if, if, uh, if I knew it was all going to happen the way that I did, would I do it the same? And that's a really hard, really, really hard question to answer, you know? Uh, I always say if I could have wrote the book and then go back in time so I could read about my experiences, my book, Five Minutes, that I would definitely do it again in a heartbeat, you know? Do a, it's hard to say because I don't want to say my life is is bad by any means, you know, I don't, I mean, nobody obviously wants to live in a wheelchair. And I always say, thank God your happiness doesn't come from your legs, <laughs> you know, because I'm still a very happy person. I still go do all the things that I want to do, but do I wish that I could still go for a run? Do I still wish that I could, you know, walk up a flight of stairs? Do I still, yeah, absolutely. You know? So yeah, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat if I had the opportunity to go. And <clears throat> I would still continue to serve today if I had really had the opportunity to serve in the capacity that I wanted to. But after I got hurt and I was spending all my time down in San Antonio, not only was I rehabbing my my body, I was also rehabbing my mind. You know, I just went through some of the, some very traumatic experiences. And I sat down with this guy named George, and 
I just spilled the beans, man. Everything I could ever think of that ever bothered me, you know. And uh, he's like, wow, there, there's a lot here, you know. <laughs> and uh, we went through everything. And um, he's like, you know, I think you're good. And I was like, hey, you know, I still have like six months here. I think I'm still going to keep coming to see you, you know. And I worked really hard on my mental health. And that's something that I think was one of the greatest things I ever did. Because I don't feel like your your body can be as physically healthy as long as you're, you know, everything has to be yeah jiving together your mind your body everything you know and it really worked hard on my mental health and I left in a really good state of mind or the best state of mind I thought I could possibly leave in and it's something I always continue to work on and I always try to focus on the positives all the time you know and I feel like after you do that long enough and you just keep grinding and, and when things get harder you're like all right you know I've been through a lot worse than this and I know what's going to come out if I can beat this one thing like, think about how good I'm going to feel at the end of all this, you know, and, and, you know, I like to feel accomplished and I like gratification and I like those things, you know? So me being able to push through things has always been a, a thing that one of my strengths, I guess you could say, you know, and I always try to, like I said, I just love to win more than anything in the whole world. You know, it's all I really want to do is just win. And I just look at every day as a challenge and I'm going to win every single day, you know, and I'm going to make the best out of every single day because I know that in one step, your life can change so dramatically. And, you know, it doesn't, you don't need a whole day to have things go really bad. You know, you can you just need one step, you know. So you were out of the hospital in six to eight weeks. What was yeah. it? Was it eight it was, weeks it like eventually? Eight weeks. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Which is amazing, yeah. by the way. I mean, given I was, how much happened to you. I to get joke. Out I just weeks. needed stitches. Yeah. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> but uh, you kind of alluded to it. You, you probably had quite a bit of physical therapy and return yeah. visits and things like that. What was kind of the the longer term treatment and, and what did that look like and how hard was that to go through? Yeah, one of the things that I did is I thought I really wanted to walk on prosthetics for a really long time. And what I found out is it wasn't really a rational thing for me to, to be able to think that I was going to be able to do that. I mean, my right leg is so short. It was so hard to attach a prosthetic to. And then... Um, you know, just having to walk with a cane all the time and having one hand, you know, being in the shape that it's in, not being able to really, so I had to use my good hand with a cane while I really couldn't carry anything then. Um, the rate in which I got around was incredibly slow, which was not <laughs> good for me. Uh, I just felt like I was never going anywhere. I felt like the whole world revolved around me when I was on prosthetics. And when I was, then all of a sudden I jumped in my wheelchair and I felt like the world felt normal again, you know? Um, yeah, people look at you and stuff and stare at you when you're in a wheelchair. And I always joke, it's just because I'm so incredibly handsome. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you are. Right? Yeah. I was going to say, there is a, when, a seat of truth in that. Yeah, that's or, for sure. Or, There's <laughs> something we all share in common here, and that's we're incredibly sexy. It's in the intro. Uh, um, you know, and so. uh, I always, uh, I, one of my favorite jokes when I'm out in public, I ride around on a two-wheel wheelchair. You know, it's a segue. And people are like, oh, man, that thing is awesome. I always go, do you like my wheelchair too? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but no, I just felt like the whole world revolved around me when I was on prosthetics, you know, and everybody was like, oh, God, watch out. Here comes the guy on stilts, <laughs> you know, and uh, I didn't like that feeling at all. And I never felt like I was being productive or I wasn't being the best version of myself, you know, and that's one of my that's what kind of the title of my, my, the punchline of my book is build your attitude and shape your perspective. Um, and so one day when your life flashes before your eyes, it's worth watching, you know. And I just didn't feel like I was I was doing enough. I felt like everything was just focused on me trying to walk. And then I had this realization that would walking really make me happier in life? You know, if I could just walk perfectly right now, 
on these prosthetics, would I be a thousand times happier? Is this the thing that I really want to accomplish in my life is proving that I can walk again? And it's like, no, I really want to go just try to be the best dad that I can be. And my goal after when I was rehabbing and the core value of my book is creating the best new version of yourself every single day, right? We're going to build off of what we learned yet today. Tomorrow, we're going to be the best version of ourselves because we're that much smarter, that much wiser, that much more determined, you know, to reach whatever it is that we're trying to achieve. And that's just kind of how I look at everything, you know, and, and I feel like when we have goals and we have purpose and we have the things that we're trying to achieve in life, that really was where our mental health really kind of balances out, right? Like I can think about all the hard times that I've had in my life or the things that I struggle with or whatever it may be. And, or I might think about, you know, I could sit there and think about all day long, relive that day of land being killed in my head every single day, you know, but I have other things I'm trying to achieve in my life. And it's not that I've forgotten him, or I don't honor him as often as I can. It's the fact that I'm still trying to create the best life possible. I'm trying to create these these memories and these visions. <laughs> so, so that that way one day in my life flash before my eyes, it's worth watching, you know. But I honestly don't think, I, I think that if, if guys are struggling with their mental health, they have to go start seeing somebody, period. I mean, you have to start talking to somebody. You have to start learning those skills and having somebody reinforce you on how you're going to be able to get through those situations when those things happen, figuring, getting to the core of why you feel that way about those situations, you know, and if you don't feel like you're getting the answers where you're at, then you have to find somewhere else. You know, yeah. you just can't say, well, it just didn't work for me. Well, maybe that one person just didn't work for you. hundred percent agree with you. And my yeah. wife is a therapist and she's a sweetheart, but, uh, and she's told me this many times upon conversations about, um, not necessarily her own clients, but people in our families that may be seeing therapists, uh, not necessarily veterans. Um, and she said so many people give up after one attempt uh, yeah. to see a therapist because, hey, well, I, I just didn't really drive with them or I really didn't connect with them. I didn't feel natural, all those things. And uh, I guess I'm saying this for those who are listening and, and others, um, give it another chance. Go see somebody else. There's multiple therapists, there's multiple people and you yeah. can join, you can join in whenever you want Jack on this, but just because you don't hit it off with one particular person doesn't mean that therapy isn't for you. And, um, I th personally, I think, I think, uh, therapy and, um, mental health should be a part of our wellness plan. Absolutely. No matter what stage of life we're in, no matter what profession we're in or matter, you know, matter, no matter whether we have legs or we don't have legs, you know, right. like that, that's so important for people to talk these days about what we're going through. And I always ask people all the time, you know, when you went to therapy, what were you expecting to come out with? What, what were you expecting? What were you expecting out of the situation? You know, and I always go in there with, and whenever I meet my therapist, I'm like, Hey, this is what I'm working on. This is the things that I'm looking at tips and pointers to get through. Like, how can you help me be better in these situations? You know, what, what insights do you have for me? You know, and really at the end of the day, our therapists are really just our, our tour guides in our right. life. You know what I mean? Like we're the ones that have to look around. We're the ones that have to take the pictures. We're the ones that have to do all these things in our lives. And they're the ones that are gonna be like, Hey, you might want to look over here to your right because right. we're coming up on a whatever, you know, and this would be a really good way to get through this situation. And you just sure. need to keep these things in the front of your mind as you're doing it. And they give you the tools that you need to be proactive and, and having Absolutely. and keeping the right mindset that you want or getting to the mindset that you want. You know, you can't just expect to go into therapy and this person's going to like hypnotize you, give you this voodoo therapy. And all of a sudden you're going to walk out of there being like, I did therapy today and I am <laughs> I'm growing. Yes. I am feeling fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Going to get a milkshake and That's a burger. Right. That's right. 
what, what's, what's Jack's biggest struggle? Um, you know, something that, uh, if you can share, yeah. um, you know, that maybe comes up a lot in your own therapy sessions. What, what, what is the thing that is the biggest struggle for you? Um, you know, on a daily, a weekly, a monthly basis. My, my biggest thing is, is, um, trying to stay engaged and finish out projects that I have going. Right. So I feel like a lot of times that I get bored easily, but it's still a passion. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Uh, I love challenges. I love problem solving. I love taking on those kinds of things, but I feel like once the hard part is over, then I, I just, I'm like, well, it's not that hard anymore. You know I mean? I kind of finished all what I wanted to do, you know, but <laughs> I just don't take it that last 10 feet, you know? And right. so, for me, I'm trying to figure out how it is that, how, how do I, how do I want, how do I want to create myself to have that closure more on the things that I'm working on? You know, how do right. I, how do I, how do I want that gratification of not just getting through the hardest part, but actually finishing out the thing that it is I want to do. And that's kind of what got me to write in my book and finishing my book. You know, I had all these notes, I had all these things jotted down. I had all these ideas that I wanted to put into the book and I just didn't, I had all this, this, the things squared up for it. I just didn't have, I just didn't have the publisher. I didn't have the actual, this part of it done. I didn't have that done. And once I, I figured out like, Hey, these are not my strengths of putting a book together and doing all these things, but I do have a story. I feel like that I could make a book. I want to go find somebody that's the middleman. I need to find the book broker in my mind. <laughs> that's what I was looking for. You know, the guy sure. that can put this rest of this deal together, you know? And, uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Little, was like, hey, have you ever heard of this app called Upwork? And I was like, yeah, I have. He's like, have you ever posted on there? I was like, no. He's like, you should try it. So at like 10 o'clock one night, I was sitting in my chair at home, and I'm like <laughs> writing up this really very bland, uh, just Upwork thing to see. If, it was like it costs nothing to post on there, you know? So I was like, let's just see what I got here, you know? And I put this thing out there, and I, I've, I don't know, I put my phone down and went to sleep or whatever. I woke up, it was like eight 30 the next morning. And I was like, I have 7,000 people that want to write my book. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And Damn. I was like, Oh boy, this is a little overwhelming. You know, and I started going through it and, uh, <laughs> I kept coming back to this guy named Terry. He's down in Texas. Uh, his dad was in Iwo Jima, lost a leg over there. He had a son that was a captain in the military. He himself was in a wheelchair. He had polio as a kid. And uh, I talked to him on the phone, and I'm like, oh, this guy's writing my book. This guy's awesome. <laughs> How, and, is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. I How actually old's just, Terry? Oh, God, he's got to be like 70s, in his mid-70s, maybe late 70s. And uh, just an incredible writing style. I like the style that he wrote in. I mean, I felt like uh, <laughs> I would just sit there and talk to him on the phone for two hours. And that was, you know, obviously from this podcast, you can tell I enjoy talking. And uh, he's like, Jack, I think that's enough for today. <laughs> he's, like, <"I'll>, <laughs> he's like, that's a lot to edit from here. You know, I'll, I'll Megan start with starts this. getting jealous. That's right. You're yeah. hanging out with Terry all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Writing the book. It honey. was during COVID. So it was probably the exact opposite. Like, would you just go call Terry and talk to somebody else for a little bit? <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's do a selfless plug in the book. Let's, yes, where, where can someone get it? I know that yeah. you got the website. Yeah. But I, yeah. Jack Zimmerman, MN, Jack Zimmerman, MN.com. Like, as in Minnesota is my website. Um, that's where you can go to book me to do my motivational speaking and things like that. And then uh, uh, I wrote the book called Five Minutes, 300 Seconds That Changed My Life. Uh, a lot on the story, but my book really goes into in-depth on the lessons that I learned from my recovery. You know, it's not really a war book. It doesn't really talk about, you know, all those things. It talks about the day that I got wounded and the lessons that I learned from getting wounded that we can apply to our lives today. And just some of the most simple lessons, you know, like controlling things that we can, you know, that we can and not worry about the things that we can't, you know, and the first time we do anything is the hardest. And, 
you know, just your attitude is everything. And, and, um, I think about how easy it would have been for me to quit, you know, and who would have blamed me if I would have laid in a bed the rest of my life, you know? And, and, uh, I always think about the guys that drug me off the battlefield that day and what a slap in the face it would have been to those guys. <laughs> like, what was the point of saving my life? I was just, if I was just going to come here and lay in this bed the rest of my life, you know, and it just shares the stories, a lot of stories that I went through and, and, um, it all kind of, I'm not going to wreck the ending, but, um, uh, it really sums it up, you know, and, and, uh, everybody on I'm not just trying to, you know, toot my own horn, but everybody that's read it said they've really enjoyed it. And, um, I'm really proud of what the book that I wrote, you know, it's a, it's a great book. Well, See, I look forward to buying it because I'm, I'm very interested in hearing the oh, yeah. ending of it. Uh, I give a little advice at the beginning to just say $25 for a signed copy versus $20 for a regular copy. You're underselling that signature. <laughs> we do need to upcharge on that uh, signature. I, I just, I just don't want too many people to ask me to sign it. Cause I, I mean, I used to be right-handed now that I'm left-handed, I struggle right now. I'm just uh, kidding. There you go. <laughs> um, and on the motivational speaking front, yeah. I, I think I've seen from your social media pages, you're speaking all the time. You're all over the place. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I mean, um, just me going out and sharing my story, you know, I, I, I go and talk to schools all the way to corporations and churches and, um, I really tailored my message to whoever I'm speaking to, you know, and there's different parts of my story that are more important to people that may be going to high school than are uh, living in a senior living home, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, I was like, hey, you know, you got to go out there and make those memories. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, oh, God, yeah. might be too late now, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just, I, lo I really enjoy going out and speaking. And, and I, I feel like I can bring a really good sense of humor too with a with a, with a really good message involved, you know? And, and I, I do like to joke, not joke about my situation, but I, f I, I feel like, um, I've learned to laugh so much in life because there is so much to laugh about in each situation that, that you might as well laugh because why not? Who doesn't love to laugh? You know I mean? Don't take everything so serious because it doesn't have to be, you know? And, and, it's okay to laugh, you know, and, and I, I think I make fun of myself more than I, than I make fun of anything else in this, in this life. But, uh, you know, humility is a really important thing to me. And I feel like that's how a lot of us wounded warriors, you know, uh, learn to heal with our situation was to be able to laugh through it, you know? And, and, um, uh, so like I told Aaron, when I was trying to get on this podcast, the hardest part about getting your pocket, getting on this podcast is just getting your foot in the door. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, you're funny. Very good. I like you. Um, I was going to ask you, so just, just kind of, a a message to not really a message people that don't understand, um, the situation of veterans today, obviously you're very close to men and women who have served, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all the time, uh, connected, you got friends, you, you there's conversations, uh, different organizations, you go and do speaking tours and, and yeah. golf events and fundraisers, everything else. For those who aren't very familiar with um, this service men or women life, you know, people who, who serve our country, right? Um, what would you say to them would be something that would be help them understand where things are at today and how to support uh, veterans like yourself and others um, in that arena? Am I making sense with that? Yeah, absolutely. There's a disconnect, right? Would you agree there's a disconnect of understanding what you guys do and why you're over there fighting. And there's a lot of people that say, why are we even over there? Right. You know, like, why are we even over there, 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 you know, like, um, what would be the best way to help the common person understand that it's important to support our men and women and to understand that sort of, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I always say is serving in this country was the greatest honor in my life. 
I today still struggle to find things that bring me as much purpose as I, as I felt when I served this country. Uh, I woke up every day and I got to don the American flag on my shoulder and I carried myself with a sense of pride and obligation as a soldier, right? And then uh, one day I'm told that, <laughs> you know, you don't wear that uniform anymore because you're retired and, and uh, you start wondering what's, what's next in our lives. And I feel like a lot of veterans, um, I don't think we'll ever find a sense of purpose like we once had in our lives. And that is the ultimate, that is our ultimate uh, dagger in the back, I guess you could say. You know, even if a guy does 20 years, you know, in the military, that's all he's ever known then, you know. And <laughs> I don't think you ever really want to be done serving. I think that you'd love to take a couple years off and then get right back to it, but it doesn't work that way, you know. And uh, I think that that's the hardest part of that people really have a hard time understanding about people that serve in the military is is that – Every day we walk around with just a little bit of sadness or sorrow that we'll never we'll never get to 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 be that person, you know, that got to defend this country, you know. And I think that everybody at one point in time looked at us a certain way. You know, you'd walk down the street in your uniform or you'd walk into the grocery store or whatever in your uniform and people would look at you a certain way. And then all of a sudden one day you walk into that supermarket and you still have all the same skills. You have, still have the same desire. You still have that burning in your heart. But people just don't look at you the same way they used to, you know? And people don't. You know, one day you walk into the store and they're, hey, thank you for your service, sir, you know, and this and that and everything else. And, you know, and, and they're just, you know, they look at you like you're a superhero. And then the next day you walk in in civilian clothes and, and they're like, aisle seven looks like it's open, <laughs> you know? And you're just like, okay. You know, and it's, that's a hard thing for a lot of people, I think, to have a hard time coping with. And so I think one of the things that we have to realize is that whenever we're dealing with, or I don't want to say dealing with, but we're, we're talking to our, our veterans in our community and stuff like that is, is you have to realize that at one point in time, that was, that was, that's the greatest honor of their life. That's the, that's the, that's the best thing they felt like they've ever done in their entire life. And it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't just a time in our life. It was the greatest time of our life, you know? And, uh, we will never have friends like we had in the military, you know? I mean, um, it's one thing to say, yeah, oh yeah, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. And then in the military, you're like, yeah, I would have literally died for that dude. You know, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've run across a field of IEDs to drag him <laughs> through a hail of bullets to get him on a helicopter, to get him home. You know, uh, I would drive through hell again to get land home to see his daughter, you know? And now it's like, you know, you call on a friend, you're like, oh yeah, he had this thing come up and you're like, okay. You know, no big deal. You know, it's like you don't count on your friends back home like you would have in the military, right. you know. And and one of the jokes that we always had in the military is, is how you describe a military friend is is in the military. If you find yourself in a bar fight, it would just be like, oh, man, Jack's hitting somebody. I got to find somebody to hit. And then on the way out of the door, you're like, why were we fighting in there? It doesn't it didn't really matter why, <laughs> why your buddy was mad at somebody. You just had to have their back, you know, where it's like civilian friends are like, wait, wait, why is everyone fighting? <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. That's the, that's the difference, you know, of, you know, just the camaraderie, the experiences that you've been through, you know, those kinds of things. And then we come home and we want to treat our friends the way that we tra treated our military friends, you know, with the same respect and the same everything. And, and if they weren't also in the military, that's, that's where you're like, you know, there's that breakdown there. You know, you just, you don't see things the same way <laughs> as each other. You know, what a friend to me and a friend to you is maybe two, maybe two different things now. 
do you think that's the beginning of the disconnect that leads to mental health um, downfall? Yeah, big time. And um, just being misunderstood, you know, and I don't feel like in the military, we're never really taught, excuse me, to use our words, you know? So I think a lot of times veterans have a really hard time expressing how they feel because we were supposed, we, we had to, we had to suppress those emotions and those feelings for so long. You know I mean? There was stuff that happened to me in Afghanistan that I would tuck away for <laughs> over a year, you know? And I mean, by the time I actually got to talk about it in therapy and everything that I went through, um, stuff that happened at the beginning of the deployment that you would literally just have to sit on for a year that you kind of forget about. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, I haven't thought about that in a long time. That really messed me up for a long time, you know? And then you, you know, start talking about those things, you know? And, I think that's why you see so many groups like the VFWs and the legions and the disabled American veterans and the list goes on and on Iraq, Afghanistan veterans of America and so on. And we so much enjoy engaging in, you know, we'll go hunting together. You know, there's different outings, you know, for through say wounded warrior project or, you know, I'd organize a hunt out at Traxler's hunting preserve and we'd bring out veterans from all over the country and we'd just have a fun filled day of, of hunting pheasants and drinking beer and having eating delicious food and just sharing stories. And, when you leave those places, you feel inspired, you feel refreshed, you feel like, you know, you're a 20 some year old kid again, you know, hanging out with your buddies. And then you wake up the next day with a hangover and remember that you're in your 30s. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but, uh, no, those, those things matter, you know, and, and hanging out with like-minded people is, is important, you know? And, um, you know, uh, it was my race team. We have a nonprofit on the hood of the car called, um, Patriot catfishing. And it's a, it's a, it's a nonprofit that's nationwide. They go fishing all over the country, take these guys out. And I find that sitting on a boat with a bunch of other veterans and sharing stories and experiences and laughing together and doing those things is something that I regularly need to do because it makes me tick. It makes me inspired. It makes me drive. You know, it, it fills those voids that you, those, those cracks that you can feel coming, you know, and keeps you moving along and, and, those things are so important because I, I feel like too, not so much me, but especially other guys that the war still rages on so much inside their heads, you know? And, and sometimes I honestly have a hard time talking about PTSD <clears throat> with other veterans because I, I feel a sense of guilt almost because I don't really struggle with PTSD. You know, I don't have nightmares. I don't care who walks up behind me. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I still feel like I'm the baddest thing rolling this planet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that shows in your confidence. I was going to say earlier, I think you've, um, you, you made comment of, you know, since you've been out of the military, not knowing your purpose, your mission, um, it's very evident to me. And of course my perspective is not necessarily yours, but what you're doing right now with, yeah. with your motivational speaking, your book, jumping on shows, talking to people and, and just sharing your story, but also the experiences that you've had overseas, the, the work that you're doing with veterans, it seems very clear to me that you are living what, what seems to be a, a very clear mission and purpose. I mean, it, you've inspired the shit out of me in today's <laughs> podcast. hundred percent. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to listen and feel the same way. I hope so. You know, I mean, uh, I always, whenever I start talking and doing my speeches, I always say, you know, um, I hope that you can take something away from this story and, and I'm putting this all out there so nobody else has to step on IED to learn the things that I learned, you know? And, yeah. uh, it was, uh, I never looked at it as like a, as a, as a, as a really bad situation. You know, I shared with you my worst day in Afghanistan and, um, I'm just so thankful to be here. You know, I'm so glad to be on this side of the earth, you know, and I know that I'm not going to be here forever. None of us are, you know? And, 
it's so important to make your life what you want it to be while you're here because, you know, it can all be over and it can all change so fast. And I don't think that, you know, you hate to say it, but like, you know, you're, you're at a funeral. My, or my favorite joke is, is, you know, we should, we should get together more often than just at funerals. You know, you hear it all the time, you I know? know, for sure. And it's just like, you know, you think of that person, pick up the phone and call them. You know, if you're, you know, if you're whatever it is, like become the best new version of yourself every single day. You know, if you feel like, man, I'm off today or my mental health just isn't right, then do something about it right now. Like how many, you only have so many, I always joke, you only have 52 weekends in a year to plan them quarterly. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, how do you want to spend your weekends? You know, you only have 52 of them. And it's just like, are you really going to spend the first 10, you know, weekends of your life having a you know just being sad and sorrow at home and wasting those time because you're never going to get that time back you know you're never going to be you know you hear hear people that are older than us say all the time oh what would it be to be 33 again you know and you're just thinking man i need to be living right now because somebody really wishes they could still be me you know what i mean like how lucky i am to be able to have these opportunities and really at the end of the day um i don't feel like we're we, need to, we all need to live for something bigger than ourselves to give us purpose, but really we're living our lives for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like whatever you make out of this is, is what you're going to get. You know, you're so sad to lose people in your lives, but it would be really sad if you think about that person and think, man, they had so many goals that they never even try to reach out and get, you know, like I feel that would be sadder, you know? Right. No, I love it. It, it's such a great reminder, Jack, because we get so caught up in our thoughts you know, everything yeah. is, uh, not everything, but so many things are the biggest problems in our own minds. I remember I brought this up in the podcast in the past with Wes and other guests, but Mark, um, Mark, uh, Manson's book, um, um, look at me go. I just instantly forgot the book I was talking about. Um, the, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Thank you, Wes. Love you. Uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Have you heard of that book? Yeah. I have, I have, yeah. It's a very good book. I read it and, uh, and I don't even know how to read well, but, um, I read it and it was great because it was simply the point of choose what you want to give a fuck about and let the other things go. Absolutely. And there's so many different ways to say that, but you know, choose wisely. It's, it's yeah. also part of the energy bus book, you know, who you yeah. bring in on your bus, the right. positive people, let the rest go. Yeah. You know, there's only so many times and so, so much time in a day, so many years in your life. Uh, to choose and your story and what you stand for and what I personally believe and, and so much it's, it's like, let's, let's ride the the train of positivity here as much as we can, not in a fake way, right? but in, but in a way that's real because there, there's, there's so much in this world that, you know, you can choose to latch onto and be negative about and, and whatnot, but there is so much to also be positive about too. And so that's what I keep thinking about when I hear your story, I keep thinking to myself, Christ, like this is right. just, it's amazing. So, um, I, Wes, if you don't have any, do you have any more questions? Well, I think we could go for another hour, but it's, <laughs> yeah. we're at the two hour mark. Yeah. So it's appropriate Jeez, to start wrapping up. Wow. It goes so quick. Fast. It goes quick. Uh, well, that was so, the first half of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that was the first quarter. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into the, uh, the final five we call cool. it or the fast five. Love you it. don't have to go fast. So we call it the final five instead. Yeah. But, um, Jack, we're going to ask you five questions. You answer them how you wish. Yep. Um, and uh, we'll go from there. Cool. Are you ready? You yeah, feel good about that? It. Let's do it. All right, good. Wes, you ready? Yes. God. 
Never looked better over there. Uh, question number one. Um, so we talked about um, things with your legs. Yeah. And how that was with recovery and, and uh, getting things grafted and all that. Yeah. I want to know, how are your boys today? Oh, yeah. So uh, one, <laughs> one of my boys swelled and ruptured, so I had to take – that one got taken out. Okay. And uh, so I always joke, it's like sitting on a grapefruit all day now. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the other one took shrapnel. And uh, that was one of the things that me and my wife uh, were really worried about. Um, and went through all this testing and found out we were going to have to have in vitro. And we were uh, in an in vitro class and she looked over at me and she's like, I don't feel very good right now. And I was like, well, drink some water, take an ibuprofen. I don't know what to tell you. And uh, we actually found out when we were in a future class that she was pregnant. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that's always kind of my joke is just tell me I can't and I'll show you I can. You know? <laughs> Including my swimmers. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's a that team is, effort there. I that love is, that. That is fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I want to take a really quick side note yeah. to at least acknowledge your family. Yeah. I meant to bring this up earlier, oh, no, so I apologize for that. But I know your wonderful wife, Megan, has been your caretaker, your best friend, yeah. your, your wonderful wife. Yeah. You do also have have two sons, yeah. um, seven and William nine. and Benjamin, yeah. right? Yeah. Seven and nine. Yeah. That's fantastic. They're the best. Sweet I mean, to be a dad. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't, I mean, I, I was never uh, the kind of person that's like, oh man, I cannot wait to be a dad. You know, that was never, uh, especially I, I think, um, Willie was born when I was like 22 or 23. And, um, especially at that age in my life, I was never, uh, dying to have a son, you know, and I mean, I always wanted to have a family, but it wasn't like priority number one. And, um, after Willie was born, I was like, oh, it's the best thing in the whole world. I mean, uh, I used to feed him his bottle every night, you know, and, and, you know, I just love being his dad, you know, and I still love, you know, inspiring them and trying to make them figure out to become the best version of themselves every day, you know, and, and to, um, try to teach those lessons that I've learned the really hard ones through my life. And, teach them, them as early as I can, you know, obviously I'm not going to, you know, drill sergeant them or anything like that, but <laughs> I try to have these conversations with my boys and, and help them understand that everything that you do in life is a choice, you know, and everything that happens to you in life is, is your own fault in a sense, you know, take ownership for everything that happens to you and, and, um, be fortunate when things go your way, you know, and, you know, just trying to teach them the best lessons that I can. And, and, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there might be another another boy <laughs> someday about yeah. raising these boys. Yeah, I love it. We'll keep up the good work. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate that message. All right. Um, is there anything you know? Obviously, Jack, uh, and for those who are listening, it, you know, obviously you've you've caught that Jack does not have his legs, his lower extremities, yeah. and uh, very uh, would you say limited function? Yeah, my right, right hand doesn't really work, and honestly, right that's hand. my worst energy <laughs> energy. Um, my worst injury that I have is my thumb. I mean, I don't think we realize every single day how much we use our thumbs, you know, and my, it was my dominant hand, you know, and right. my left hand really didn't work at first, you know, and I had to get that working again. And, and, um, you know, I've learned to incorporate my right hand more into my life, but, um, there's still a lot of things that are very difficult, you know, and I lost most of my pronation or supination. That's how you rotate your hand, you know, like to get change from somebody, you know, and I've lost that pretty much in both my hands. And so it's like trying to find, ways in life. I don't think we realized, you know, how important our hands really are to us and being, especially being able to have that pinch, you know, right. I would say, honestly, it sounds messed up as it sounds as my, losing my thumb was the worst of my injuries. It, it's, it's interesting because you would think other people would say, 
well, man, you lost your legs. Right. You can't do this, that, or the other thing. But my, my question kind of building on that was, was really like, is there something that kind of has, uh, here and there or, uh, perpetually eaten at you that you feel like you've, you miss out on, you know, whether it's with your kids or just yourself, yeah. something that you're passionate about. I know you said you loved basketball in the past, <laughs> you just but it, yeah. is that it? Yeah. I mean, like with your situation, right? I mean, what's yeah. the biggest thing that you have to sometimes slap yourself in the face and say, it's all good. Yeah. This is my life. This is yeah. how it is. Honestly, it was, it was playing sports. I mean, uh, even when I was in the army, we still go play pickup basketball a couple nights a week, you know, and, and I just, I, I love running. I used to love running. I mean, I was a big guy, but, um, I could run, you know, and I enjoyed it. I mean, even when I was, before I joined the military, I'd go run every single night after work, you know, and I just really, I really miss the, it's as crazy as it sounds. The one thing that I honestly miss is like, you know, when you have a, you spend all day working on the yard or, you know, you're just, you know, you're helped a buddy pour a slab of concrete or whatever it is. And you sit down, you take your boots off. You're like, man, I am exhausted. You know, and you like, you get that one night of sleep where you're like, man, I must've been so tired. It's, it's really hard for me to get that, that sensation again of feeling exhausted from a good hard day's worth of work. I mean, I work really hard um, still today, you know, but it just, I, you know, when you're writing a book, it's a lot different than, you know, uh, clearing out a section of woods or, you know, whatever it may be, or splitting a whole pile of water, whatever it may be, the thing that's exhausting every single day. And that's one of the things that I honestly miss most of, of being in the situation that I am now. Question number three. Um, and I think you kind of answered it before, but uh, I guess your, your, your simple message uh, to people about servicemen and women today of the status of uh, servicemen and women today and what you would you would say would be the biggest, um, you know, as far as, as somebody that didn't serve, yeah. what would be the biggest message for them about to be aware of for those who do serve? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, we're so proud of our service. You know, most of us want to share our stories and most of us um, would be more than happy to share our experiences and what we've gone through, you know, the stuff that we want to share, you know, and I think the one thing that, um, by being curious is, is, is almost the best acknowledgement that a soldier can get, you know, um, you know, Hey, so, you know, did you ever deploy? You, you ever say that to a veteran, you know, especially as a civilian, be prepared. You might be there for two hours, right? Like this podcast, <laughs> you know, because we're really proud of what we did. It was the greatest yeah. thing we've ever did in our lives. And um, we love sharing those stories. And I honestly believe that if more veterans like, like myself would go out and share their story and give people an opportunity to hear their story and, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be you going overseas and getting wounded or finding yourself in the middle of a gunfight or, whatever it is, whatever you did contributed to the fact that America is what it is today, you know, and you had skin in that game and people want to hear those stories, you know, and there's so many funny stories of, of my experiences over there and, um, give, give, give soldiers the opportunity, give them the stage or, you know, service members, give them the opportunity, give them the, give them the stage to share their most proud moments that they have in their lives. I love it. Question number four, a tree, Wes, I did it. I brought it back. If you could be any tree, mm. Jack, any tree in the planet, what tree would you be and why? Oh, I think I'm definitely, I mean, I always love the firefall maple. I mean, that's my firefall maple. Too. Yeah. I love the, I love the, the, the richness it gets to it in the fall. You know, what really stands out. And, uh, there's just something about a maple tree, right? They're just the, I feel like they're the best tree. I mean, everybody wants a maple tree in their front yard. 
uh, it's they always have the best shade. And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of a tree junkie. I love trees. That's one of my things. So yeah, I love I planting trees. This. I do. I really love. Planting I'm so trees. glad I asked this. Yeah, if you ever come over to my house, I have tiny trees all over my property because I love planting them. We have had zero guests that have talked about the firefall maple. That's correct. That, that, is, the first, one. that is the first time. Aaron tends to ask that question. I always tend to shake my head because yeah. I'm like, oh, what you a ridiculous question. But we actually get some unique answers on that you one. You know what so. you should? You know what you should add to that question is if you and if you were that tree, where would you want to be planted? Ooh. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, have, I should have thought of that. Where would you want to be planted? I was going to say, planted? what's your answer? Uh, I think I'd probably want to be on the White House lawn, right? Or in, or in Arlington National Cemetery, right? Where we're surrounded by heroes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll be Arlington. Yeah. Be I think your answer would be better than most people's answer because they go, well, I have no idea. I just like the tree. <laughs> you know, but. That's me overthinking everything. But I like it. Yeah. Well, that's okay. We like that. I would have said Olive Garden Unlimited Breadsticks. But, you know, I guess West it's a tree. It doesn't matter so it's, much. It's about this time of the night. Wes gets, you know, the, 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 he gets a little hangry. He's, focused. He's ready to He's eat. Focused on I didn't have dinner. Day. I got to go. We're going to get you some food, Wes, I promise. Um, question number five and the final question of the Get Deep podcast tonight, Jack Zimmerman. Really appreciate you. Um, and that is a message to your boys. You got William and you got Benjamin. Seven and five. Yeah. Correct. Seven and nine. Yeah. Seven and nine. I'm sorry. Um, what is the message? If, if Jack Zimmerman leaves the earth tomorrow, yeah. you know, yeah. we don't need to get into details on that, but let's say you're, you know, tonight's your last night. Yeah. What is the message you want your boys to know going forward with all the experiences that you've um, experienced up to this point in your life? What would that be? Honestly, uh, I would tell them to read, read a lot, absorb. You know, um, I think that's one of the things that has really gotten me to where I am today is I, is I just listen, I absorb, I read, I roll with whatever happens to me in life. You know, I, and I, I try to get a little bit out of something that I, I look at every single day. You know, I've, I've I really enjoy reading about people and, and reading how they've gotten to where they are and what pushed them to get where they are and learn about yourself as you go through those situations, you know, and figure out what makes you tick and do it and do what, and do what makes you happy. Right. Like I, f I, f I feel like I talk to so many people that are like, ah, you know, I got this thing going on. I'm not really sure about it. And this, and I just think to myself, then why are you still doing it? Then why are you still doing it? Go make a change today, you know? And, and one of the main things that I live by every day is, 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 you know, be wealthy in the sense of being wealthy to me is going fishing whenever, whenever you want. You know, being able to, you know, just go peel off and go to a, a Vikings game whenever you want with the people that you want to go with, you know, or whatever that means, being able to have the opportunity to go do those things. You know, don't be owned by a job or a career or whatever it may be. You know, be, be, be able to go do the experience of things that you want to experience in this life because, like you said, <laughs> tomorrow it really could be over, you know, and have you done enough today to make you happy that when you're laying there bleeding out and your life's flashing before your eyes – are you, are you happy with what you're seeing? You know, and, and it's real, your life, everybody's life is going to flash before their eyes at some point in time. And I feel like the luckiest guy in the world, cause I'm going to see it twice. You know, I got to see like the trailer, <laughs> you know, for my life, you know, and, um, ever since that day, I've done nothing but put the accelerator all the way to the floor and I never lived. I never lived because, uh, th this life is so great. You know, it is, it's, it is whatever you make it. And, uh, and you just have to, you just have to go after it, whatever it is that you want, figure out what it is that you want and focus on it and just go get it. Don't let anything stop you. I don't want to say anything to ruin that ending. Yeah. So I'm just going to finish it with, 
thank you so much for your service. Thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. And and continue to spread that message, Jack. Absolutely. Thank important. you guys so much. This has been great. Yeah, thank you, Jack, so much. I appreciate your time uh, away from your family to join us on the Get Deep podcast. And uh, keep doing big things. We'll, we'll keep following you. Uh, for those out here listening uh, this evening, order Jack's book if you get the chance. And Jack, one more time, uh, wh- what's it called and where do you find it? Yeah, jackzimmermanmn.com. And uh, you go there to order my book, 5 Minutes, 300 Seconds. I changed my life. Thank you, Jack. God bless you, buddy.